Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Hi everyone and welcome to the Listening Party, the quarantine edition. My name is David Dedrick. And my name is Mary Dedrick. You forgot your name, Mary? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't forget my name. Okay, that's good. I, well, I was just waiting for you to finish talking. <laughs> okay. I want to. I didn't want to interrupt you. No, that's fine. This is going to be kind of hard for us because we we're doing this over Skype, which uh-huh, we are, and uh, we we're usually used to sitting uh, leg to leg in in in, in our sp- room. in our small studio here. Yeah. Yeah, but now I'm I'm I've. Uh, isolated myself in the bedroom of our one bedroom basement suite while Duncan is literally right on the other side of the door playing uh, video games. Very loudly? Very loud. Well, pretty loudly. I can hear it. I'm worried that you guys can hear it. Uh, no, I can't really. It's not picking up on, by your, on your mic anyway, so it's all, it's all okay. good. That's good. Whatever he's doing. All the boop, 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 yep. boop, 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 boop sounds. That's what he's playing. He's playing Don- yep. he's, I assume he's playing Donkey Kong. Yes, he is. Yeah, he has moved an arcade, an arcade game. He's moved one of the big like arcade well, games it, into our into our tiny, tiny, tiny <laughs> basement suite, and he's been playing that. Do, 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 do. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Mare. Yes, father. Uh, you were just talking about Sufyan before we started the show. Yeah. And I wanted to tell you that I heard a song from his new album Aporia that, okay, he, yes. that he did with Lowell Brahms, his stepfather. Yes. And it was really good. Okay, cool. I was surprised how good it was. I was expecting something like I know it's sort of like a new agey kind of instrumental album in most in the, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting something kind of like Know Your Rabbit. Right. Enjoy Your Rabbit. I'm sorry, Enjoy Your Rabbit. I was thinking it was Enjoy yeah. Your Rabbit. And I was like, no, I always get that wrong, so I'm going to say Know Your Rabbit, but that's wrong. I think, <laughs> I think that's the name of a of a Joan Rivers movie with um no, that's Rabbit Test. Anyway, don't, don't never mind. No, you no, Know Your Rabbit was a movie uh with uh the Smothers Brothers. That would okay. came out. This is our this is our movie podcast. <laughs> but anyway, sneaky, it, sneaky dragon watching party. But so I expected something like that, but it's actually a lot better than that album. I think, like the song I heard. Okay. Anyway, I haven't heard the whole album Sweet. yet. But, I'll have um, to check it out. I think it's on Spotify. Most likely, Should I, I want access. Of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy it. Of course, on CD. Well, of course, but I. But I have to see how I'm gonna get it. It is available on yeah. Bandcamp, but often with Bandcamp, Bandcamp's kind of designed. To sort of sell CDs, but it's more designed to sell streaming stuff. Mm. So, like when you buy a CD, it's like ten dollars, and you're like, "Oh, that's so reasonable." And then it goes and eighteen dollars postage. You're like, "Well, that's oh. gone out of the world of reasonable." <laughs> yes. So yeah, yeah. But I do like to use that service for bands that don't have CDs but have their music available. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I was sort of excited. Yeah. I think I might I might have mentioned last episode that I was excited to discover that. Lullaby Baxter had a, had a newish album, a 2016 album that I had no idea about, but it is available on Bandcamp. As are all her albums, if you enjoyed Lullaby Baxter, you can find her albums on Bandcamp, although I imagine they're on Spotify for Spotify users. I am not a mm-hmm. Spotify user, but I would sort of, sort of am thinking about it because, speaking of Sufjan Stevens and his stepfather Lowell Brahms, there apparently mm-hmm. are curated Spotify lists by Lowell Brahms, basically um replicating mixtapes that he sent to Sufjan Stevens when he was when he was growing up. Mm, uh, that I think that is sort of a feature of um Spotify that is really good. Yeah. Is that you have 
um, yeah, mixes that are made by artists that you like. So you can see it's basically like when you get a um, a an uncut or yeah. a or a Mojo magazine, um, Mojo magazine and they yeah. have those like here are a bunch of songs that this artist like yeah. likes. Yeah, it's like that on Spotify. Cool. So Duncan and I were going to go to a concert that I'm I'm pretty sure it's been canceled, um, but. It was Corblund. Uh-huh. Um, I think I played one of his songs. Yep. Yep, he did. I believe. Yes. Yeah, yeah I played one of his songs. Yeah. And um and he doesn't have a new album out, but he had he was going to make a um like a Spotify playlist that that was sort of like the vibe that the concert was gonna be. Mm. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, kind of I didn't realize this was a feature of Spotify, so I'm sort mm-hmm. of more curious about it now. Of course I I feel like it's a very unfair platform for musicians, but um, yes, I guess it's slightly more fair than people just illegally downloading albums and stuff, which is also yeah things that people do. Yeah. So, and as do I in some cases, I do like to download people's compilations and stuff like that. Just is a good way to discover new music. But maybe Spotify is the way to go. Anyway, so let's let's talk about what we're gonna do this week, Mary. I kind of hinted okay. at it uh, a whole bye week ago. I hinted that mm-hmm. we were going to, I kind of like, it was sort of like an omen, an ominous warning that I made partway through the show. And I forgot to like mention it at the very <laughs> end of the show because I'm always so excited to end the program. We've been talking for so long. I'm like, let's get it over with. But, but, mm-hmm. but this is uh, our second in a series of three uh, novelty song collections. And of course, it's not really just novelty songs. The idea of it is novelty songs by bands that aren't novelty song bands is sort of the right. the idea of it and so because mm-hmm. i'm sort of fascinated by the idea which frank zappa first talked about in the 1960s which was or maybe mentioned in the 70s but exp- talking about his experience from the 60s which is that comedy doesn't sell in music like you have to be a serious band like led zeppelin or something like that who are very serious about their music and their roots and blah, blah, blah. We don't have any funny songs until they do like the crunge on their fourth album or, mm-hmm. you know, or, yeah, or fifth album. How's of the Holy? Like, you know, there's like some kind of weird sort of idea that bands, you know, if you do funny music in a, on an album, then you are not a serious band. And right. so that I think sort of crept into people's understanding of music. And I remember one of our listeners describing no fun as a comedy act. And I kind of like bristled, what? They're a serious band. And I thought, well, no, I guess they are kind of (laughs) do a lot of funny (laughs) songs. So I guess I wouldn't really think of them though, as a comedy band though, because they do songs about breaking up and, you know, uh, you know, you know, songs about relationships and, and, and songs about, you know, life and stuff like that. But they also do songs that have a humorous element to them as well. So, But so, but I think mm-hmm. so. I'm kind of fascinated by groups that have that element to them. Like one band that was they they was the Who. Like the Who is f- their music. Their music is full of silliness. You know, we played "Now I'm a Farmer" in the first on the first one, but uh, the song that had been there before "I'm a Farmer" was a song called "Dogs," which was this weird, very like c- Cockney sort of knees up, uh, based around like going to a dog track, you know, or a do- or dog racing track, and and it's just a insane song that was just a single it was never like put on an album or anything so it's kind of hard to hear unless you have one of their box sets but it's right it's just like it's just a crazy goof em up you know and you're just like well you know the who could be like doing tommy you know and doing like a rock opera but also l was just peeking in the window by the way i just have to 
do a little color commentary. <laughs> he just kind of stuck his snout up, looking in the window. Um, he wants to know what you're doing in there. Yeah, he's what's going on? Why is Dave? Why is you, my why is my master talking into a into a stick? Can I? Change? He's like, do you have food for me in there? <laughs> no. Okay, I'm not interested. He, he did walk away. He did realize I wasn't yeah. even eating. So. <laughs> Just, just disgusted. He's like this. He's like this isn't the kitchen. I can be here. This is so weird. He must just marvel all the time. He must be like, they have a fridge full of food and a cupboard full of food, and they are not eating constantly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that's kind of that. Sort of was the the jumping off point for this collection. But to be honest with you, I also do have some some novelty songs on here by bands that are nothing but a novelty act. Uh, but I just wanted to put the song on. So there. So there. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there you go. So Mare, I know last yes. time you found you found it very painful to listen to the the first novelty song CD, but you uh-huh. kind of you kind of intimated at the time that it was mo- it was a lot to do with the fact that I hadn't told you that it was a novelty song collection, and you've you were just kind of wondering why is this happening to me and so because you knew yes. this time i gave it to you and i said even wrote on it novelty songs on the cd yes, so you yeah. so you knew what to expect and did that make it a little bit mm-hmm. more bearable no <laughs> I... <laughs> okay thank you for being um, blunt <laughs> yeah well i'm just trying to be honest yeah that's fine um it <laughs> Yeah, no, it did. I'm not going to say it. it helped. Okay, okay. It, yeah, it was pretty painful this time, actually. I think it was worse this time than last time. <laughs> but, oh, you know, dear. I guess we can get into that. Okay. <laughs> Gee, I'm, now, I, now I'm not looking forward to this. I'm not looking forward to this at all. <laughs> but I brought it on myself. I brought it myself. Yes, but I guess I can. True, I guess can. I can blame my friend Mike, Mike Roth, who sent in. Uh, to be fair to Mike, he sent in a a bunch of CDRs, but he sent them with the instructions to. He was just getting rid of them and to to send them on to someone who maybe needed one. Mm. And I took that as an excuse to make five, I think, uh, mixtapes for him. <laughs> so so yeah. So in a way, Mike is to blame, but at the same time, Mike is also the victim of this. <laughs> But he did ask for a novelty song mix. He mm. did, to be fair, he didn't ask for three novelty so song l- mixes. He does like novelty songs. I assume that that was what he was maybe getting at, but this is maybe or, not what he was expecting. Or, or he learned a or, valuable lesson. Yep. No, no, no. Here's my theory. Okay. He was doing it like he was like, "Oh, send me all your novelty songs," and he took yeah. it and he just threw it in the garbage. <laughs> and he was like, "Now." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, now everyone is protected from these because Dave has already used them. <laughs> That's that must be it. That must That's probably be it. it. Oh he was like gosh. a he's like a sacrificial lamb. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> I I imagine that was the case. Actually, I'm sure that's what happened. <laughs> he like took them, threw them, threw them off a cliff into a burning mm-hmm. into a burning pit below. Mm-hmm, there's a mm-hmm. there was a hundred foot drop into a into a fire, a, <laughs> yeah, a fire made of bricks. It was just all bricks that had been somehow set on fire, and then the CD artist just landed on them, <laughs> yeah, the old, shattered the old to a million fire. pieces, <laughs> and then were burned burned beyond all repair. Oh well, I enjoyed it while I made it. And I would been I've been tootling about listening to this album for the last few days, so so I okay. I, I like it. Yes, so I mean, I figure you would. This, you made it. It's all it's all musicians that I I like a lot, or like somewhat, or 
uh, somewhat appreciate not every song to be honest but most of them some of them i just put on because i'm like i need one more song <laughs> here it is <laughs> so um and of course when you finish your mix your comedy mix thing and, and to be honest these are hard to make because you're always like oh what is that song by so-and-so that would be perfect here but what is that song called oh i can't remember and then you so then you put off doing it and it takes a long time to do. Right. So signing off on a mixtape, uh, a comedy mixtape, I find very difficult. That's what I'm saying. But I did sign yeah. off on these. I just said, this is it. Done. So our first one, Mary. Yes. I think is a great song. I loved the song when I was a, a teenager. Okay. This is uh, Captain Sensible from mm-hmm. from his, his first solo album, Women and Captains First, that came out in 1982. And this is the song What. So let's give it a listen, everyone. Here we go. Said captain, I said what? 
And we're back. Oh, Mary, you couldn't possibly have objected to this song with its wonderful, that little kind of piano riff in it and the guitar strumming away and and that great girl chorus and and that proto white guy rap uh, that was so popular in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. Dad, yes. you know my feeling on 80s music. <laughs> okay. And this really just kind of struck you as an 80s song all the way through? And through? Yes, yes, okay. yes. Okay. Very synth heavy. Yeah, yeah. And I oh, think a lot of my issue with 80s songs is synth. Yes, synth is not the greatest part of the 80s. That is, I definitely would agree with you there. I don't yeah. mind it. I, actually, I don't mind it in this song so much because I feel like there's lots of uh, organic instrumentation that's going on, not just the electronic right. stuff. Uh, you know, real drummer, real guitars, real people gotcha. singing. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, like yeah. the, the sample of that, that little piano bit is, is I think, mm -hmm. pretty pretty tuneful. Um, yeah. So, Mayor, you know what? Yeah, yeah. You know what? Yeah. I didn't hate the song, though. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I I thought, kind of, I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, it's a fun song. And you know what it reminded me? You know what it reminded me of? Yeah. What? what? Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it was fun. It reminded me of um, a song that would be by that would be in the TV show Phineas and Ferb, okay. and would be by their their band that exists in that show that's called Love Handle. I see. Who are we? An which 80s is band. stylized as um, love, and then H. A with an umlaut, N D E L. <laughs> okay. So yeah, they were they were like an '80s band. They were like a sort of glam rock band from the '80s. Okay. Um, that uh, that um, they they get back together in in the first season. That yeah. Phineas and Ferb sort of band back together. Yeah. In an episode that I believe was called "We're Getting the Band Back Together." Sure. Oh no, sorry, it's called "Dude, We're Getting the Band Back Together." Um, but there's a song in. Can I, can I play a song? Sure can. Pardon me. Would your name be Swampy? Ex-drummer for the band Love Handle? That, my friend, was a past life. The name's Sherman. Why asking? Because they're reforming for one night only. It's a celebration of our parents' anniversary. Well, that sounds charming, boys, but I haven't played drums since the accident. Fell asleep in a metronome factory. When I awoke, I completely lost my sense of rhythm. I've been hanging out here ever since. So you're saying that you don't have rhythm, but listen what you're doing right there. With that stamp and a book, you got a real nice hook. Sounds to me like you got rhythm to spare. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've got as much rhythm as that chair. What happened to me was a tragedy, but I don't have to be a millionaire. Look, I got a sweet deal going on here. I got all the books that I can read. All these sweet old ladies in this carpet from the 80s want mocha the librarian needs. Besides, I ain't got rhythm. No, I ain't got rhythm. Said I ain't got rhythm. I ain't got rhythm. You're kidding me, right? You're, you're kidding me. Don't you see what you were doing right then? That's a wicked groove you were starting to move. Mister, you got rhythm times ten. I think perhaps that you're not listening. I find it tedious to repeat. It's no big drum, I just can't keep time I'm telling you I lost the beat I don't need my face on t-shirts Or hit a power chord guitar They were screaming my name, I guess it's a shame But I don't need to be a rock star Besides I ain't got rhythm No I ain't got rhythm Said I ain't got rhythm Sounds 
seems like they all agree But you're laying down so fucking sick of pain But you got that beat Look at them, they're stopping their feet Go join the band. Hey, 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 All right, so that was uh, Love Handle or Love Handle, as their uh, umlaut should tell us to pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, Handle. I guess I was also I was reading on the Phineas from Wiki. And I guess their name is um, also a reference to uh, the Baroque musician George Friedrich Handel. <laughs> okay. Who was German. Yes. Yes. The Baroque. Anyway. Yeah. Baroque. Yeah. Baroque. That's what I said. I said Baroque. Okay. It just sounded like I said broke. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's no. pretty wealthy. Yes. Yes. I remember with standing with your mom one time, we were looking in an antique store window and Oh, that was really elaborate furniture. She said, oh, I'd love to buy all this stuff, but then we'd be Baroque. Um, so that's why I married her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mare. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Captain Sensible. Okay. Do you know Do you know what band he played in before he started his solo career? Sure don't. Uh, he was in a band called The Damned. They were, they were kind of a, well, they were a very pioneering British punk band. They were the first uh, British punk band to have a single out which was New Rose that came out a few weeks before the Sex Pistols, Anarchy in the UK. They uh, were the first punk band to have an album, their first album, which was called wow. um, Neat, 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 that came out, uh, was produced by Nick Lowe. They were the first punk band to tour America as well, British punk band to tour America as well. So wow. they, uh, they were kind of a pioneering punk band, and he was one of the founding members of the group. Um, he, I guess he actually wasn't a founding member, but he joined in 1976, he came in as the the bassist recommended by his by the band's drummer, this guy whose uh, name was Rat Scabies. Okay, same. Of course, <laughs> because it was the punk era, you immediately changed your name if you wanted to. So uh, Rat Scabies' real name was Christopher Miller, and who would want to be called that when you could be called Rat Scabies? Well, yeah. And uh, Captain Sensible's real name was Ray Burns. And so, um, so he started as bassist, then he... When uh, another guy in the band named Brian James, not his real name, left the group, uh, he wait, took sorry, he changed his name to Brian. Brian James, yes. His first name okay, was well, his first name was Brian. I can't remember his last name was now. Sorry, but okay, his okay. Uh, first name was his um, his uh, last name was was not James, but he took that as a as a cool last name. So he left the group. Okay. He left the group, and so then Sensible took over on lead guitar. And became the band's main songwriter as well. And then he also was a keyboard player. So he, he kind of did all those things for the group. So after their second album, which was called uh, Music for Pleasure, which they had wanted uh, original Pink Floyd leader Sid Barrett to, to produce, which of course he didn't do because Sid Barrett suffered like a psychotic breakdown from LSD use in, in the late 60s. So he you know what didn't do very much for most of his, his life. He was a painter, but you know he just did not go out and uh, out and about. It wasn't going to be a person producing albums for you, let's say that. So instead, they got right. the band's drummer Nick Mason to produce it for them, which is kind of a sign of a real come down, right? To go from the leader of 
of the band to the drummer. But anyway, so that album came out and it was a real flop. And so that caused a lot of band tension and they broke up for, for a while. And so Sensible did a single in 1978 during this hiatus called Jet Boy, Jet Girl. And then when the band returned with their very successful third album, which was called Machine Gun Etiquette, in 1979, he kind of divided his time between playing for the damned and then he kind of started doing a little bit of solo stuff on the side. He did an EP called This Is Your Captain Speaking that came out on Crass Records in 1981. And what's funny about that record is that so he called himself Captain Sensible because he was the opposite of that as a human being. He was a person who described himself as a debauched maniac and who just like selfishly enjoyed himself at everyone else's expense. It was basically mm. like his life's philosophy. So he just, right. and regardless of the consequences. So he stayed for a week at this uh, place called Dial House, which was Crass Records, which, okay, there's a band called Crass. They were this mm-hmm. sort of anarcho-punk band like this really like anti-religious, vegetarian, anarchist, superly, super political group, which I've, I never really liked, but I never really heard them very much, but I always found them like super intimidating feeling, like all their, they had like this really like monolithic aesthetic. Everything was black. Right. Everything was black and white. Their album covers were all kind of stenciled lettering with these, with very black and, and, and white covers. And it was just like the whole image was just so like, so like, puritanical and forbidding feeling that I could just never right. like I could never enjoy it as, a, as an, like, an, even as an idea but Byrne stayed there as Captain Sensible stayed there and it just changed him as a person he became a vegetarian and a pacifist and he like gave up all his kind of old habits hmm. and uh, so then he in uh, I guess in 82 he started working on Women and Captains First which was produced by Tony Mansfield and you can kind of tell who, where this guy came from because he was a member of a synth pop band called New Music, which I think he really brings that element to this album. And I know that's part of what you don't like, but he was recording, he was the producer for the Dams, an EP they did called Friday the 13th. And on the side, he and Sensible recorded some demos that Mansfield liked a lot, which he gave them to his manager. And then Mansfield manager passed them on to A&M Records, who then signed Sensible to a solo deal. And all of this because of some songs Sensible said were too melodic for the dam to want to do. Like the band didn't really like that kind of stuff that he was writing. So he would put those songs aside and use them for, for solo stuff. And so that's how that kind of came about. And then this album really like became a big hit. There was a song on it called Happy Talk, I think. And that was a big, big hit. And then this song was also quite a big hit in England. And of course, you know, you don't have to make it here to make it anywhere, but it actually was a was a popular song here as well. Like the video was very popular and, uh, and the song here did quite being well. North America, not Canada. Yes, North America, exactly. And so, uh, and then the song features backing vocals by the all-girl post-punk group Dolly Mixture, uh, and I mentioned that because Sensible would later marry vocalist guitarist Rachel Bohr of the group, and they had uh, some children together, but they did not stay together. But yeah, okay. And so I thought it'd be kind of fun since we're talking about. Dolly Mixture, and I love to play post-punk girl groups to play Mm -hmm. a song by them called How Come You're Such a Hit with the Boys, Jane. And so we'll just play that now. This is, oh, we're getting three, we're getting two early songs in, Mary. That's really good. So uh, here we go. So this will be Dolly Mixture, How Come You're Such a Hit with the Boys, Jane. How come you're such a hit with the boys, Jane? That they want to know. That they want to know. 
Guns may be the best thing in town I'd like to shoot them up and make them frown Hey, listen, Jane, here's a hit from me You're not the biggest catfish in the sea Right, and we're back and so that was just a little bit of fun uh this obviously wasn't part of the novelty mix but i thought i'd, I'd throw it anyway maybe this song counts as a novelty song i don't know mary is this song a novelty song um i don't know i don't think i listened to the lyrics enough to know if it okay. was or not okay because <laughs> i think it's like yeah okay i don't know i don't think so though <laughs> no i think it's just a fun song from that time period that if you want to take i mean there was a certain sense of humor of that time period as well in songs so that's mm-hmm. what also appeals to me but yeah, I just enjoy their their bit of fun. They never really they never really made it as they say, but they had fun and that's the important part I think. They did more than I did as a musician. So, Mare? Yes. You enjoyed that song. Wh- which one? Captain Sensible. It was it was pretty fun. Okay, I'm going to put that on the plus side oh. of the of the the column. Okay, sure. Also, I'm I think it was in here. An, it was I think it was in an episode of Legion. Oh, that song was? I think so. Oh, cool. Cuz on the YouTube, you know, when you're like looking at something on YouTube and yeah. the comments are all, here's how I came here. So there's a bunch. <laughs> yeah. Legion sent me here. Oh, okay. Greetings. Cool. Legion watchers. Person spelled <laughs> greetings wrong. Did they get Legion right? Uh, yes. Then I'm sure it was just a typo because Legion's harder to spell than uh, greetings. Mm. So I'm glad Mary, I, I'm keeping a tally here in the studio. I'm hoping listeners are also scoring at home. I hope they have a little scorecard. Keeping, right. Keeping yes. Track of songs it. I oops. Sorry. Songs I like. Songs I don't like. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they do. I'm <laughs> sure they care. I'm sure they care about it that much. <laughs> no, I'm sure they do. So uh, let's go into our next song then, sweetie pie. This is all um, right. This is this is a band called Yachts. Uh, like yachts. In yachts. But they're not yacht rock, which is like soft '70s soft rock and mm-hmm. pretty awful. But this is yacht. This okay. is the yachts. Or just yachts, I should say. They're not the yachts, just yachts. And uh, right. this song is Suffice to Say, which uh, came out as a single on Stiff Records in 1977. So here we go, everyone. This is yachts. Mm-hmm. Mary, you already sound excited. Oh, right, let's hear this. it. Yeah, you already sound excited. Oh, am I yawning? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay. An auspicious start to our, our show. <laughs> This is an SOS from Yachts, straight to your heart. I'm just a young romantic fool, I wrote this specially for you. Although the rhyme is not that hot, it's quite a snappy little tune. I'm sure you'll like the chorus too, it's short, sweet and to the point. It even says that I love you Just after this 
weeks alone What can I do? On the streets Bereft of you What's a lonely man supposed to do? Okay, and we're back. Mary, what did yes. you... What, tell me what you enjoyed about Yachts' song, Suffice to Say. Oh, I thought you were just going to say, what do I enjoy about Yachts in general? <laughs> That's right. What do you enjoy about Yachts? How many Yachts have you been um, on? Zero. Oh, I've been on, I've been on one. One yacht? Yeah. When your brother got married? Oh, no, I guess two yachts. <laughs> what when, was the other yacht? When I, was in grade, when I was in grade eight at junior high school, I was a member of mm-hmm. the canteen crew. Oh, okay. And the reason I was a member of the canteen crew is I was I was able to leave a class 15 minutes early before lunch and go down to the canteen where I would heat up cans of Chef Boyardee macaroni and other such things, uh, put on the okay. hot dog, put on the hot dogs to cook, uh-huh. and get the buns ready. And okay. Then when lunchtime came, people would come down and they would buy food from the canteen. So they'd buy hot dogs right. or hot cans of 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 Chef Boyardee macaroni ravioli or whatever. Sounds bad. Or uh, popsicles and, and things like that. Fudgicles and revels and things. Yes, yes. And that's good. And so, A, so there are two things that were good about it. One was I got to leave class 15 minutes early. The second mm-hmm. thing was I got to eat a hot dog at lunch for free. So that was pretty good. I thought that was well worth the time. So I did that for a whole year from grade eight. And as part of uh, as part of a... A thank you at the end of the year. The, the supervising teacher took us for a little trip around False Creek on a yacht. He just rented a oh, boat. Okay. Rented a boat, and we got to go down, and we had like a kind of a picnic lunch on this yacht, sailing around out in out in the Broad Inlet and stuff like that. So that was pretty cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. Actually, I realized that I have been on a yacht as you tell this story. Okay. And what time? When were you on a yacht? Because um, here in the Fraser Valley, yes, of British Columbia. Um, when you're in grade 12 you have grad like your like prom yeah um which i don't know in the states i feel like they've got proms other years other than just grade 12 or something i don't know movies yeah. are so confusing it's like they have like one think, of them every year i think you're mixing up homecoming i think you're mixing it up with homecoming what's homecoming well homecoming is when you go back to your school around thanksgiving and they usually have like homecoming things where you have like a dance or uh, some sort of like soiree for 
for returning students to the school. So, so people who have graduated in the past can come back for, oh. homecom for homecoming week and they can okay. visit their alma mater. Uh, gotcha. School, high school life in the United States is much more involved than ours ever was. I, I find. Mm -hmm. Seems like it. But yeah. I feel like in TV shows there will be a kid who's in like grade eleven. Yeah. Who goes to a school dance because then they're like, oh, and the next year I'm graduating, and I'm like, well, how come you're at this dance? Because we have like dances here, but they're like people don't wear dresses and stuff. People will just wear like. Yeah. No, I think it. Once again, I think. Well, I think once once that's television, and so of course it's a bit of an exaggerated view of of school life, but also. Mm -hmm. I do think that they have like more formal dances and things, or at least they did in the past. Because hmm. like, if you think of Carrie, the Brian De Palma film from 1976, yes, yeah, I believe. not my friend Carrie, not your friend Carrie, the, no, the, the movie. movie Carrie, right? Yes, <laughs> uh, like they have their dance, and they're all dressed in fancy getup and stuff like that. And there's like a king mm -hmm. and queen. But is it the prom though? I don't remember. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you're I, I assumed it was. You're the one who told me. I told you that <laughs> they have prom multiple no, years. Well, now I'm like, I am know. I wrong about that? I, but, no, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't understand it either. It's America. They have cheerleaders at school as well. Oh yeah, that's, 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 that's that. weird. Or now cheer squad? No, they have a different name for it now, right? There's a different name for it. Oh, is there? I think so. I don't think they're called cheerleaders it, anymore. It is. It was prom that Carrie was. Oh, was it prom? Carrie? Oh, yeah. Okay. Proud prom queen. Okay. Which okay. is also something that I'm like, I don't know what that is. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, so in grade 12 here, you have prom, yeah. which is like your big fancy dance at the end of the year and you wear a big dress. Yeah. Um, but then for kids just in the Fraser Valley, kids who live in like Burnaby and Vancouver don't do this, but everyone in the Langley School District does this. I'm pretty sure everyone in Abbotsford and people in Chilliwack do it too. You do grad crews. Okay. That's right. So that's in like usually in like November. Hmm. Um, Perfect time think, of year to be in a boat. Yeah, right. I think ours was pushed back though because of um, a teachers um, strike oh, okay. or something. Okay. Because when I was in grade twelve, they were having a, a strike where teachers, yeah, labor disputes where teachers were um, only participating in um, things that they were getting directly paid for. Okay. So they they weren't running any. Yeah. Good any, work for we're, rule. We're running any extracurriculars. Yeah. Sorry, work to rule. Yeah. Yeah. Work to rule. Yeah. I so, went through that um, too in high school. That's yeah. That's why so yeah, I get to go on any band trips in grade 11. Okay. Yeah. So our grad cruise was pushed back. I think we had it in like March or something, which also not a good time of year. But you go on a boat <laughs> and then you drive around the boat. Yeah. And yeah, it's fine. And you generally wear a dress that yeah. you buy for it, but you don't wear like the fancy, fancy dress that you wear for grad. Sure. You wear like a casual dress gotcha so yeah that was grad cruise that's the only time i've been on a on a yacht still pretty oh good. i used to spend a lot of time i used to spend a lot of time um in horseshoe bay which is in west vancouver yeah and there was a yacht there who was um who was parked near the government dock near like the public dock yeah and when i would be on my phone a little thing would pop up that was like connect to wi-fi and i'd be like where's this wi-fi from because we're like <laughs> on the ocean right now and it was this yacht had wi-fi huh interesting it said like the name of the wi-fi and i looked over and that's the name of this boat <laughs> they also had a smaller boat on that boat yeah yeah, yeah. Ugh. So, yeah that boat was pregnant <laughs> yeah i guess so um so mary but anyway yes what, what did you think what of the song Gotta mark my card here. What do you think of this song? Eh. Eh. But this song's so fun. Eh. This song's so eh. fun. No, it wasn't. It wasn't eh. It was meh. 
but it's so fun it's it's like a fun like meta song where you know it, like you know it's like makes fun of the song form it's fun you know okay. suffice to say i love you I uh-huh i guess i guess so i don't know i didn't it's it just, just wasn't for me it's just a sort of song that art students would write marion in liverpool in 1977 right you know uh the band was four guys bob bellis on drums, John Campbell, vocals, Martin Dempsey, bass, and then Henry Priestman on vocals, keyboards. Oh, I'm sorry, five guys, and Martin Watson on guitar. Oh, um, do they also make burgers? Do they all, what, sorry, what? Do they also make burgers? Five guys, yes, that's right. Because <laughs> right? it's a burger chain called Five Guys. Yeah, I get it, dear. Thank you for that. And they make their um, their fries with peanut oil. Sure. That's exactly what, what, what yachts encourage in their song, make fries with peanut oil. From their yeah yeah from their album SOS, mm -hmm. so uh, the band played their first gig, Mary, in at this uh, club, this kind of very famous Liverpool club called Eric's, opening for Elvis Costello, and this oh, wow. and this appearance led to a recording contract with Stiff Records. So they played one concert, and they got a contract with Stiff Records, and they Waza. made and they recorded the single. Uh, so the song was written by Priestman and Campbell. And produced by Will Birch, who was a member of the pub rockers, Crystal Flyers, and then later formed the Records, a power pop band, which a lot of people will know, I think. And then subsequently was a longtime Mojo contributor. And he just has just published a book about Ian Jury, the uh, a longtime, very famous English singer, songwriter, who um, is probably completely unknown outside of England, but uh, I mean, in terms of like big fame, but he was very popular in England. Yeah, and then a fu the funny thing I think about with Priestman is I first I never like I didn't really know who the yachts were, but I it's sometime in the eighties I used to read Q magazine, which was a British magazine. I really liked it because it was just so, so in depth in its coverage of everything. It wasn't just new music; it was new and old music, and but it mostly it was very of course very British centric because it was published in England. And so it this new band came out called the Christians. It was three brothers who uh, names were Gary, Roger, and Russell, and mm -hmm. then. They're, they were joined by this other guy who wasn't a brother in the band, but who was kind of their their songwriter and kind of musical arranger, the kind of musical component of this group. And his and that was Henry Priestman from the Yachts. And so that's where I first heard about Yachts and Henry Priestman. And so and so one day I was in a record store and I found this Yachts album called SOS. This is the American version of of their of their album. And the American version added. Suffice to say, as a, as a track, as an album track, and so that's where I first heard it, and I and I first thought it was the greatest thing ever because I was a teenager, and um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and what's funny about but the thing I like about Priestman being in the band The Christians is because it was Gary Roger and Russell Christian, and then Henry Priestman, which is kind of funny, but also funny is that his middle name was Christian, so he could he was could literally be a member of that band still, you know. Just, anyway, just a little bit of trivia there for you, Mayor. You're welcome. Hmm. Yes, thank you. I just kind of like. I, I like all that stuff. You know me. You do like all that stuff. As a as a group, I, I I don't think the Christians were that great. Like I wasn't really interested in. They're sort of like a mainstream, you know, singing group. But uh, but I just found. I just when I saw that Yachts album, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. So I bought it. It was cheap. Anyway, there you go, Mare. On to song number three. I'm sorry that you only. I have to. Guess I'm gonna have to put this check mark right in the middle of my column. This kind of makes it confusing now. So you didn't. You did not like oh, it. Yeah. That's because you need to have a you you need to have a meh. Column. <laughs> I need to have a meh meh column. Okay, I'll just try another. Yes. I'll try another. Here, I'll just try another line on this. Oops, sorry. Piece of paper here. Yes. Mhm. Mm sure. Go for it. Got my pen. Add one <laughs> more line. Yeah, this is uh, some good foley work here. There we go. All right. So then, foley work. 
<laughs> I dropped my pages, so just one second. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to our, our third song, Mary. This is this is um I not only did I drop my page, I lost my page. This is the GTOs or Girls Together Outrageously mm-hmm. and their song I'm in Love with the Oo Oo Man from their nineteen sixty nine album Permanent Damage. Let's give this a lesson, everyone. All right. All right, everyone. That was I'm in love with the oo man. So, Mary, what did you think of that song? I really didn't like the singing. <laughs> you didn't like the song? No, not at all. Oh, dear. Why not? Was, the singing wasn't good? It was just like so much. There's just like so much going on with that singing, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? 
<laughs> no, I don't. She couldn't do it. What was like? What was going on with it that you didn't like? Like it was just. It was so amateurish. Uh, not amateurish, just like syrupy. Okay. <laughs> uh huh. So a little too. Yeah. So you didn't. It was too girl groupy for you, or it was too like cutesy. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, do you know who the GTO GTOs are, dear? Uh, no, I don't. I think we might have mentioned them in one of one of our episodes. I'm not sure though. So, uh, they were a Frank Zappa produced group. What's that? Sorry, what? It's hard to keep track. Yeah. Um. Well, we haven't played them before, but I just wondered if I mentioned them. I think I feel like I have, but they were a Frank Zappa produced group. Um, and they kind of fall into what I think of as, and I would put an evening with Wildman Fisher in this as well, and maybe even Trope Mass Replica. I, I would put it in what I call Frank Zappa's sociological albums. So they're not so much musical albums, although they have music on them, as they are explorations of a particular aspect of fringe Los Angeles. And even, I would even also put in, um, his Lumpy Gravy in there as well, which was a, an album that was part music and then part mo- uh, dialogues between uh, stoned hippies that uh, Zappa just kind of surreptitiously recorded. His friends uh, just sitting around in the studio or laying underneath a piano in the studio talking, and he just recorded them and he interspersed them into this into a suite of songs called Lumpy Gravy, which was like which was described as a ballet, as music for a ballet, but. It's more just sort of like um, bits of like kind of modern sort of mid-century classical music mixed in with with very boring hippies talking. But he just seemed to find that really fascinating that this uh, those sort of aspects. Partly because he wasn't a uh, he wasn't a stoner himself, and so and he also was kind of an uptight guy, I think, which is why he was like a workaholic. But I think he found people who kind of threw it all, <laughs> all away on just like frivolity mm. and or even mental illness in the case of Wellman Fisher. I think he just found that fascinating. And so there's a certain amount of, of documentary, musical performance, and then exploitation in these albums. Like I feel like someone like Wellman Fisher, you know, is sort of being exploited for his character. You know, he's, he's doing this thing, but... He thinks he's being made into a star, but really he's just, he's like Christian Bale's character in The Fighter. He thinks he's in a movie about his comeback, but he's really in a movie about crack addiction, you know? And Wellman right. Fisher thinks he's in a, making an album that's going to make him into a big star, but he's really making an album about outsider music uh, by a, by someone who's more interested in him as an outsider than him becoming an insider, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so the GTOs were not, the GTOs until they met Frank Zappa. They were originally, they were a bunch of friends, a bunch of girls, so high school friends, friends who kind of came to LA, were attracted there by the music scene, maybe interested in music or more interested in the guys and stuff like that. And they became part of a scene that hadn't really existed in music as a formal or named or recognized thing. Of course it existed, but it never wasn't given a name until they were called groupies in the 60s. And oh, okay. These girls didn't coin the term, but they kind of celebrated it in a way right. that was sex positive, that was, you know, sort of liberating, was very feminist, as opposed to before when it would have been very sh- kind of slut shaming sort of thing to be referred mm-hmm. to as a groupie, to be, you know, to be a hangers on around bands and stuff like that, which would have been loose women and did that kind of element to it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, living that kind of lifestyle has elements of risk to it. You are, you know, leaving the bonds of of sort of civilized society to to give it sort of a 
a name. I don't want to say that what they're doing was uncivilized, but just sort of the idea that you're living outside the the bounds of what would be considered like normal normality. Yeah, as as Bob Dylan observed, if you if you're going to live outside the law, you must be honest. You know, and so when mm. you make these sort of decisions that you're going to live outside of the bo- bounds of society, you have to have a rigid ethical system that accompanies it. And if you don't, you will fall apart and sink, right? So so that's kind of the moral of, of the, the GTOs in a way. Um, so yeah, they came to the town, these girls, these girls out of high school, these girls from town, and they came there mostly because they wanted to have sex with rock stars. That was their thing. And, and LA was like the best place to do it because a lot of bands used that as a center of operations and they stayed in hotels there. And so you could meet. And if you hung around the whiskey, hung around the troubadour, if you hung around the whiskey, if you hung around, if you knew people, you could get into parties and then you could have sex with rock stars if that's what you wanted to do. And so, um, now when they first started, they called themselves the Cherry Sisters. And I think you probably know why that was called that. Um, but then they changed their name to the, uh, Laurel Canyon, ballet company uh, oh okay because they, they were ballerinas? well they weren't really ballerinas but they would dance at shows and stuff like that and often they would dance on stage they'd be invited by bands to to sort of go go dance on stage or whatever and so oh, okay. they would, would do that and they dressed very flamboyantly with a lot of these crazy layer dresses and very very uh heavy makeup you know and very much like kind of baby girl makeup in some, some cases where they would like literally draw circles of rouge on their cheeks and huge okay. black raccoon eyes with like you know this coal you know uh, run around the aisle 16 times to give it the right amount of black you know and and they just they had like a kind of a look that was very very kind of silent sort of silent film era but also colorful it's kind of a weird thing and then um yeah so there was about i'll just name all the girls i don't i'm not gonna go into into uh describe describe their whole histories and stuff like that because it's quite long um and i just i don't know if i don't know if i want to take the time and we're going to do another song by them so we'll go more into the more into their histories later on I, um there's another song i love by them i do like this song a lot so i'm sad that you don't like it but there's a song i like better that's on a, that's on a different mixtape not a novelty mm. one uh okay. so the gto's consisted of miss pamela pamela miller um miss mercy whose real name was mercy oh sorry real name was judith peters uh miss cinderella whose name was cynthia wells miss christine whose real name was Christine Furka, F-R-K-A. I hope I'm not mispronouncing that. It's a hard name to pronounce. F-R-K-A? Yeah. Okay. Eastern European. Yeah, uh, I was going to say. Oops, sorry. Miss uh, Miss Lucy, whose real name was Luce or Lucy Offerall. She was from Puerto Rico. Luz is oh, in, like Luz? Luz is L-U-Z? In, yeah, as in light. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Miss Sandra, Sandra Rowe. And then um, Miss Sparky, whose name was Linda Sue Parker. I put the Linda Sue in so we could kind of figure out where the name Sparky would have come from. <laughs> Sue Parker. Anyway, so then, um, yeah. And so that was the group. And so they uh, they were kind of, they befriended, they, they some, some of them befriended Zappa. Like some of them, they, uh, so they met Victor Hayden, who was the cousin of Captain, Captain Beefheart. And Victor Hayden's better known as the Mascara mm. Snake. He played in the Magic Band with, with Captain Beefheart. He is on Trout Mass Replica, that great, great album. And, Captain Beefheart int- then introduced them to Zappa. So at the time, Miss Christine and Miss Sandra were living in the basement of Zappa's Laurel Canyon house. Uh, Miss Christine was the live-in nanny for Zappa's uh, first child, Moon Unit. And then, are you laughing? Yeah, just laughing at that name. Oh, okay, yes. Moon Unit, Dweezel, that was his oldest son. Mm-hmm. Then the names got more normal. 
Ahmet. Right. Ahmet. Okay. And then Diva. Yeah. And then Diva was the last one. Okay. Ha- haven't some of his kids changed their names legally? I don't think so. No. Oh, really? No, not at all. Oh. Hmm. Okay. Are you thinking? Uh, no. Who's some, someone else? Are you thinking of Woody Allen's kids? Uh, Satchel changed his name to Dylan. Or Ronan, sorry. Oh, okay. Ronan Farrow instead of Satchel. But yeah, no, they kept I their don't names. Know, I thought, yeah, they, I don't know. I thought. No, they, they love their dad. Oh. So they love their mom and dad. So they never they never resented their their weird names. I mean, Moon isn't a bad name. Just her middle name's Unit, but I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like she goes by Moon. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. Not Moon Unit. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah. So then Zappo is fascinated by these by these ladies who had come around and were boisterous and la- talkative and laughing all the time and, and had all these stories to tell about all their adventures and their sexual adventures and their misadventures and everything. And so he uh, encouraged them to be, to start performing and, uh, and they would do like, they would, op- they just perform maybe like five or six times as a, as an actual group, just opening for the mothers of, of invention, obviously. But um, so Zappa, Produced and played on this album, of course, as well as several other mothers, including Don Preston and Lowell George, who at this time, this was before he formed Little Feet. This was when he was a member of the Mothers of Invention. And um, others, other musicians in the album include Russ Teitelman and his brother-in-law, Ry Cooter, who both played with Captain Beefheart on Safe as Milk. So, And then Jeff Beck is on it, because uh, at that time he was dating Miss Christine. And then Rod Stewart is on it as well because he was in the Jeff Beck group with Jeff Beck. So he got dragged into doing this. And there's a story that when he came to do the recording, which was at Zappa's, which was at Zappa's home studio, which was in kind of like a suburban area in Laurel Canyon, uh, he got really kind of despondent and left. And then he was sort of wandering around the neighborhood and then got lost and couldn't find its way back. And so they had to go to try and find him because they're wondering where he was. Uh, so they just found him sitting on the steps of a, of a high school, just sort of looking all sad. <laughs> Okay. So then, uh, and then Davy Jones is on it as well from the Monkees, because uh, he was friends with Rodney Bingenheimer, who was kind of a DJ and scenester in LA, and uh, and friends with the GTOs, of course, because that was a way for them to get in the parties and things. And so, yeah. So amidst the songs on the album, including "I'm in Love with the Oo Man," and in case people are wondering who the Oo Man is, it was Nick Saint Nicholas, the bass player for uh, Steppenwolf. And the fact that I love this is because I love all the accidental connections that we talk about during the, the shows. And we mentioned Steppenwolf and Nick St. Nicholas a while ago when we were talking about bu- the Bubble Puppy, because he was, when they moved to LA, he befriended them and then kind of became their quasi-manager. And it was he and his wife who changed the, the name of the band from Bubble Puppy to Damien, which was an uh, also, which was like Steppenwolf taken from a Herman Hess novel. And then... Uh, yeah, so I just, th- those little connections are always, of course, so I just love that so much. And then, uh, yeah, so the album has those kind of songs on it. And then also has little kind of mo- little, little interview segments where the girls discuss like stuffing their bras in high school or the opposites of GTOs, which are BTOs, boys together outrageously. Uh, yeah. they talk about like sexual come-ons while they're hitchhiking. And they do a couple, two interviews, two different girls do interviews with uh with groupie slash conceptual artist cynthia plastercaster who of course was famous for giving head to rock stars and then slamming a big thing of plaster over their engorged member to to get a cast of the of rock stars penises so yes so there are many many drooping penis sculptures that are owned by cynthia plastercaster that have been displayed (laughs) Oh yeah, I was reading about her the other day for yeah, some reason. Yeah, no, she's a very interesting person, but uh, yeah, quite a yeah. So sort of anyway, doesn't matter. It's very interesting, but yeah. So I find all that very fascinating. That album, I 
it luckily for me it came out in the i guess in the late 80s the label the record or the C, or the record label enigma bought the bizarre straight catalog and released it and reissued it on on cd so like all, all the kind of really obscure stuff that you couldn't find at the time farewell elder baron the judy hedsky jim yester album was on that label and came out from them and that was so fantastic to find at that time and then also this album which i'd always wanted to get so yeah so so yeah i wasn't disappointed by this album i'm sorry you didn't like the song though but it's sung by miss christine uh or not sorry not miss christine sorry sung by miss pamela oh and by the way the reason they're all called miss pamela and miss christine and stuff like that it was they're all mm-hmm. named that by tiny tim the uh the ukulele uh singer who um wa- was incredibly polite and always referred to women as miss so if you were if you met oh. you, if you met you you'd be miss mary to him okay the reason the reason that i had been reading about cynthia plastercaster was if for you were starting our... to to follow in her footsteps yeah that's it no because um <laughs> because when we were talking about bobby Kahn. yes that's right. He, he and his uh, his wife or partner mm-hmm. Monica Boo Boo, yeah his his yeah his wife. Yeah. Uh, they were the first couple who were both cast by Cynthia Plastercaster. Oh wow, she's still doing yeah. it. I assume that they they engorged themselves rather than had Cynthia do it for them. I, I don't know. As of 2013, 2014. Yeah. Twenty fourteen, she was still doing it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, amazing! She apparently, uh, when she first started, when she first started, she didn't know that she should like uh, use like a Vaseline or KY to to grease down the pubic hair. So her first couple of rock stars just had like a huge amount of pubic hair removed when the cast got taken off. (laughs) Well, her first the first celebrity was Jimi Hendrix. Yes, yes, and he did not enjoy that experience at that point. I bet he enjoyed it up to a point. and then not two point. Well, yeah, she uh, in 2010 she ran unsuccessfully for mayor of Chicago. Hard to run under the plaster caster uh, ballot. Yeah, not a not a popular uh, mandate. No, people are not not eager to uh, to vote for someone whose name is Cynthia Plastercaster. <laughs> uh, she ran for mayor of Chicago on the hard party ticket. Apparently. Oh my god! Oh well. Uh, I'll go in. Next time we talk about the GTOs, I'll go more into the the history of of the band. Uh, like I said, right. like I said, just because um, it's a pretty it's pretty it's pretty long, and it's also very sad. So in many cases, so I, I don't want to do that in a novelty song format. I don't want to take away from the novelty of 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 what they did and 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 the fun element of it. So here's here's our next song, Mary. And believe it or not, there's going to be a connection between the GTOs and this song, and I'll explain it after we hear it. This is John Cale. From his great 1974 album, Fear, this is The Man Who Couldn't Afford to Orgy. Are you ready for this one, Mary? Yeah, I'm ready. Here we go. Man, picture the snowman, picture the woman. 
and we're back and mary yes i just want to say i am not the greatest person yeah. at picking up social cues as you know i i am uh-huh. a, i am yep. your father after all yes no i know you're very bad at picking up social cues but i just felt when i told you the song was john kale mm-hmm. the man who couldn't afford to orgy as he says in the song mm-hmm. from his fabulous album fear your voice <laughs> your voice took, your voice took on a kind of a a tone uh-huh. It makes me suspect that you're yes. not 100% behind this song. 
I'm not. No, it's true. I did like the I did like the instrumentation. Okay. Of it. Yeah. I thought that was fine. Yeah. But I just yeah. I think I think that a big part of novelty songs yes, is um, enjoying the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't say I did for this song. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. Just. You didn't feel sorry for this man who couldn't afford to orgy. No, I didn't feel sorry for you him. Pity the poor man, Mary. Pity the I'm poor man. Playing, I'm who couldn't afford to orgy. Playing the world's smallest violin. <laughs> I mean, think about it. All around I'm him. I'm not gonna. All around no. him, people are arguing. No, I, I don't want to think about it. That was the thing. There he is, outside, wearing a, some sort of old coat by an oil barrel mm -hmm. on, with fire in it, trying to keep warm. Mm-hmm. They can't afford to orgy. Yeah. Well. So sad. So here's here's the unintentional segue, Mare. When I put this on, mm -hmm. of course, I didn't know this when I put these songs back to back, but John Cale married Miss Cinderella of the GTOs in 1971. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Huh. But. So she found her prince. Well, you could say oh. that. But okay. then you could also say that John Cale was a vociferous drug taker. Oh, okay. Quite, Never mind then. Quite addicted to cocaine. And their rocky marriage foundered on her infidelity with former member of Soft Machine, Kevin Ayers. So she, mm -hmm. left, she left one eccentric uh, musician for another eccentric musician. Uh, Kale documents this on this album on Fear's song Guts with the memorable, memorable line, the bugger in the short sleeves fucked my wife. So yes, it's uh, that album. And in a way, that album, Fear, kind of marks a change in John Kale's songwriting presentation of himself as an artist. Before that time, he... Like, okay, so he was a founding member of the Velvet Underground. So a founding member of one of the most, one of the most influential rock bands of all time not in terms of sales because i think their first album sold three copies but <laughs> they were they're one of those bands that people say everyone who bought a, a velvet underground album formed a band that's kind of the joke about the velvet underground and oh, it's okay and kind of true in a way so wait like, all all three of those people who bought the first album <laughs> <or just laughs> they all, started, all started <laughs> bands including jonathan richmond but right they they um yeah they're just amazing influential band and and of course John Cale was a very important part of that as a founding member of the group. He is a key part of the first two albums, particularly the second album, which has the great 60-minute freakout Sister Ray that's so great. And he, um, but after that, he left the band because he, uh, he wanted to go further out there. And Lou Reed, who in his heart of hearts was a hack musician, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, he before he was well, in the Velvet Underground. He, I don't know how you could mean that in a good way. Well, what I mean is that because Do you I, mean that you don't mean you don't want to be mean about it? No, I don't think that's a, a bad thing to be a hack. Okay. Like some of my favorite comic books, Mary, are like Archie comics. Yes. Richie Rich comics. Uh huh. Of the sixties and seventies, I love those. I love mm -hmm. them very much. And I would yes. say, I would say that most of the people who wrote for those comic strips, and even a lot of people who drew for them, were hacks. There are people right. who did art for money. That is the definition okay. of a hack. The fact is, the fact is that in many w ways, I prefer those comics to the later versions of them that were written by people who loved comics, who loved Archie and became Archie artists because they loved Archie. But I find that that the material they produced is less interesting to me than the stuff that was produced by people who just did it for a paycheck, so they go home and smoke a pipe and watch watch baseball on TV. You right. know what I mean? Like, so I'm not. But I mean, that's not meant as an insult. Yeah. Isn't a hack someone who just produces like bad work? Not not necessarily. Not, not necessarily. I I would define I, it. Me, I would define it as someone who works for 
does art for pay? And that can okay. be that can be bad or it can be good. You can do bad bad work for pay. You can do bad work for art. You know, just because yeah. just because you're a fine artist doesn't mean your all your work is fine. Or if you call mm-hmm. yourself an artist or an, or an auteur, is your movie? You know, I'm sure that uh, that guy who did the room considers himself like an artist and not a hack. Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, but the movie's garbage. So you mm-hmm. can you can be like not a hack and produce garbage. So I think a hack doesn't necessarily mean bad work. It just means that it's done for for mercenary reasons, not for. But I think that reasons. the dictionary definition of hack is um, an artist who produces bad work or like unoriginal work. Is that is that what they say? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I don't know. I would I wouldn't define it that way. So that's what I say. Okay. I'm not, it's not. I don't mean it as an insult to Lou Reed. Right. I mean in my definition, in my personal definition of what I think of as a hack. Which I think is someone who produces art for money, which he was. He was okay. a he was a songwriter who wrote who wrote like dance attempted dance hits before he became a member of the Velvet Underground. He worked he worked in like a Brill Building kind of a setting where he worked in a cubicle with other people and they they churned out uh, attempts at you know hit songs. He wasn't mm-hmm. great at it, so he didn't really have any great hits. But you know, it wasn't really his forte. He was much better as a as a as a kind of a whatever he became as a member of the Velvet Underground. But he was more interested in money than he was in like artistic statements. So when, so when John Cale was like, "Well, for the next album, we should take the amplifier and put it in water and use that as like and record that sound," he's like, "Uh, no, John, we're just gonna we're not gonna do it." And when he left, like the Velvet Underground became very normal. Like if you listen to the third album, just the called the Velvet Underground, it's a very it's a very plain simple album. There's no craziness to it at all, except in the I think in, the last song the the gift which is like a, a like a story told to music but most of the songs in there are short they're just simple guitar bass drum songs with Lou Reed singing and same with their second album or th- our fourth album loaded you know so i think that you know john cale was the was the x factor in that group and when he left he took it with him but what's weird is when he right. left like when he left them and he and he started a solo career his first album is called vintage violence and that makes you think, oh, this is going to be like kind of a crazy album. It's not. It's just kind of like a, a very country rockish kind of an album um, using, uh, he used a band called Grinder Switch, which featured Garland Jeffries. And they're kind of like, kind of like a kind of a, I don't want to call them a roots rock band, but they're just kind of a, a rock band, like, but nothing like crazy. And so it's just very, like, very kind of mellow music with him singing. And same with Paris 1919. It wasn't until you get to 1974 when drugs are maybe getting more like a bigger part of his life and then he's dealing with the infidelity of his wife and the breakup of their marriage that his albums mm-hmm. took on this much darker taint and become more insidious and malevolent feeling and there's a song in there called gun and it's kind of interesting because it has a guitar solo played by phil manzanera and brian eno they produced they, they executive produced uh fear for John Cale as sort of a favorite because John Cale had produced Brian Eno's Another Green World. And so, and so um, they do this song in there where Phil Manzanera plays the solo and Brian Eno plays a synthesizer that the solo is going through. And, and, and while Phil Manzanera is doing the solo, he manipulates it electronically with the synthesizer. It's a very interesting effect. And yeah, so, it, but it, the whole album has this kind of weird kind of cast to it. And then next, next two after that as well, Helena Troy and, whatever the second one was that he did for Island. Because he, he left Reprise and he signed to Island Records and moved back to London. He's a very interesting guy. Like, I mean, he was a big part of Velvet Underground, as I said, were very influential. But he also, like, produced the Stooges' first album, which is, like, a seminal album. He produced uh, Nico's 
um, the Marble Index, which is once again this like fantastically great, crazy album. Like this, it's just madness to listen to it. Uh, it's just really plain, like a this basically Nico and a harmonium with a few instrument, a few instruments. Some a lot, many. Uh, Kale also played the cello, so and piano. So yeah, he played um, on Northern Sky with uh, Nick Drake. On the second, on Brother oh, okay. Later, he played a, played on a couple of songs. He liked Nick Drake a lot, and so he wanted to play on the on the album. So he oh, okay, because when I looked up John Cale, it was like Google was like, "Do you mean John Cale and Nick Drake?" <laughs> okay, interesting. Like, oh, okay, cool. That's, that's interesting. But yeah, did you you also haven't mentioned you haven't mentioned that he was also married to Betsy Johnson for less than a year? Betsy the Johnson, oh, the fashion designer. Yes, no, I think, yeah. I'm just talking about the time period that he was in at this point. Right. Yeah. So yeah, so um, yeah, because I guess she was the fashion designer for the Velvet Underground. Really, I didn't know that. I think so. Yeah. Oh, so or at least she was a part of the Warhol of the scene. Oh, she's part of the Warhol crowd. Okay. Of Warhol's like yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were kind of connected to Warhol for a little while, and they then they they kind of detached themselves from that. It was useful for a while, then it became a hindrance. But he did design their first right. record cover, which had a banana on it, just a banana. Okay. But then you could peel yeah. the banana off. It was a banana sticker. Oh, okay. And then it revealed an unpeeled banana. He kind of did a similar. I don't have that album with with such a feature, unfortunately. I'd love to have have that album, but I do have the Rolling Stones album "Sticky Fingers" that he did, which has a zipper on the pants of the of the the cover model. So yes. You, you can unzip his fly, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I know. I've I've seen that one. So I have to keep it with a piece of cardboard between it and the record next to it because it uh, wrecks the sleeve of the uh, other record. Oh <laughs> yeah, right. It's a cool idea, but kind of in a, in. Uh, hard to um, make so, work. Yeah. One day I should do like a, a video of some of the cool records I have. Mm, yeah, that'd be cool. But I, the thing about, I think the thing about having that, that zipper yeah. is that it means that you always have to prominently feature it because you can't put it in with the rest of your, your albums, right? Well, you can. You just have to put a, a piece of cardboard between the two, two records. Well, yeah, but yeah. But you know what, you know what I'm saying? No, sorry. Say it again. So like, because... If you put it there and you're like, oh, this keeps like um, ruining my other records, yeah. I'll just like probably feature it. Oh, I so see. I'll have it like up in the record wall. <laughs> okay. Or like record stores are like, oh, well, we'll just like put it up yeah. on our like record wall so that we can just have it up there. It's a great cover. You know? It's a great cover. It's a, it's a selling, it's a selling, um, yeah. It's like a marketing ploy as well. Oh, okay. Oh, that's why they did it for. Oh, okay, that's, that's right. That's the, well, that's what I'm. That's what I'm theorizing. Yeah, it's probably you're probably right. It is the Rolling Stones, after all, master marketers, and it was their first their first album of, uh, when they started their own label. Okay, yeah. Through Atlantic Records, but it was their own label. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you didn't like this song, Mary. That's good though. Can I also add that he produced Patti Smith's Horses, another seminal album. Mm-hmm. He's just all over the '70s. That guy. He had his day. Oh, and he also he also did the demos for the Modern Lovers, Jonathan Richmond's first band. Oh, okay. Another seminal album. Jeez, what a guy. What a so, guy. What a guy. All right. Well, Mary, let's go from 1974 mm-hmm. to 1969. Okay, so we're going back in time. We're going back in time. This is the Deviants with their song, Billy the Monster, from their imaginatively titled third album, Deviants 3. Here we go. So... Billy, as you walk around, Billy, Billy, 
All right, and we're back. Hello, Mary. Hi, Dad. I'm going to assume, I got to assume that this song goes into your negative column as well, sad to say. Yeah, I liked parts of it, but overall, it just wasn't for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a sort of a weird little thing. The de- yeah. The Deviants, once again, weren't a novelty act. They were a, a how would you describe them? An anarcho, left-leaning, Ladbrook Grove, squatting culture, group of political action, total assault on the establishment group. Okay. That's basically what they started as. This album kind of marked the end of that for them, though. Uh, the leader of the group, Mick Farron, who wasn't like a great singer, but he was sort of a great conceptualizer. And so he started this group, which were started as the Social Deviants, then became the Deviants. And then he got a loan from a friend who was like a millionaire, loaned him 700 pounds. And so the group was able to record their first album. They recorded it independently. It was called, it was called Patoof with two F's. Patoof? Yes, with two, okay. two F's, just to be clear. Patoof. I had, it was sort of like a comic book panel cover of the, for the album. Yeah, I was, was going to say, that like sounds like, yeah, it's really it sounds cool like a cover. sound effect from a French comic book. <laughs> yeah, it's a good cover though. And uh, so they, they would just, they just sold that through like, like through, uh, the underground newspapers, like the the IT Times and stuff like that, or the International Times, I guess I should call it. And uh, there's another one whose name I can't remember now because I'm dumb. Save the... What was it called? John Lennon did a song about it. Come on, everyone. I know you're yelling it at me now. Save the... What was it? Save the... I can't remember. Rainforest. No, not the rainforest. It was a magazine or a newspaper. Uh, oh. Like a kind of left oh. leftist newspaper that criticized John Lennon for, for his uh, not coming down on the side of revolution and the song Revolution. And so then he... Like sucked up to them through the late late sixties, early seventies, trying to make, fr- so, make make friends with them, which is impossible. You can't make friends with with uh, extremists. But anyway, he did a, did a song. Oh, do the Oz, do the Oz. That was what it was. Do the Oz. The uh, it was a another newspaper called. I think was it. It's called the Oz. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. I'm 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 worrying over minutia, as is my way. So by the time yeah, so as I was saying, by the time they got to recording Deviant Three, the band was McFerrin. Duncan Sanderson on bass, Russell Hunter, drummer, and then Paul Rudolph, a guitarist from, can you guess where he was from, Mary? Paul Rudolph? Paul Rudolph. He was I don't know. from very close to us, Vancouver, BC. Oh, cool. Who moved to London after a friend whose, his friend's name was, I have to look it up because I've written on a different page. Don't ask me why I did that. Man, I wish these pages would separate. I'm not supposed to lick my fingers. Oh, Man, G- I wish that you had written it down on the same page. Yeah, it would have been smarter. Uh, Jimmy Mandelkow, his name was, he recommended to McFerrin Paul Rudolph to be guitar player because Paul Rudolph played in the kind of local scene here in town, which wasn't much of a scene because this is the 60s in Van- Vancouver when it was, you know, very small place. But um, yeah, it was still like there's still like pigs living in the streets and stuff at that point. <laughs> there was pigs. Pigs. They were called policemen then. Now they're called policemen. Then they called them pigs. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, that just reminds me of that little scene in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when that hitchhiking girl sees a cop car go past and she gets all mad at it. First she's being all sweet and, and making faces, making cutie pie faces at but Brad Pitt and then sees a police car and like loses her. Anyway, do you know that scene? Have you seen the movie? Yeah, I've seen it. Okay. It doesn't sound like you remember that scene. Uh, I don't. Oh, you don't? Oh, okay. No, I found all the scenes with um, with Brad Pitt and those women really creepy. So I found it hard why do you find to pay it attention. Cre- why do you find it creepy? Because they're... they're, cause they're um, they're shown to be like so young. Well, yeah, that's why he doesn't do anything with her. Or he says that I don't want to go to jail. Mm-hmm. I've avoided jail so far, and you. Although he says later on that he did go to jail when he was in uh, Houston, 
So I don't know. Oh, it's after hard. he, he killed his he, wife? He says he was on a chain gang. Oh, okay. Because he punched a policeman. Mm. So I don't know. It's hard to know if his where he where his stories are real and where they're not real. Right. Okay. Which is kind of one of the points of the film, right? Mm-hmm. Anywho, so then, um, yeah, so so yeah, so he moved from London to to um, there, and what's kind of the, the reason I find that kind of fascinating is because uh, later on, a friend of mine, um, my friend, another another friend named Ian, who was living in Vancouver for a while staying at a place owned by someone else. He was just sub, subleasing a, a space in a warehouse. And he was living there. And this Paul Rudolph was a friend of the guy who owned the building and would regularly come over and, and uh, speak to him and tell him stories about working uh, with the Deviants. But he later on played with the Pink Fairies and then <clears throat> left them to collaborate with Brian Eno on four of his albums. And so we had all these great stories about that. And so I would get these related to me and I always wanted to meet him. But whenever I was there, he wasn't there and we just never seemed to cross paths. And it always made me very upset. But he was, um, <laughs> he was a big time bicycle rider and owned a bike shop in Gibsons for many years. And then oh, cool. he retired to Victoria. But before he did that, he went to, went to London to play guitar. And so, uh, so what happened with during, and so, um, yeah, he was just there to replace another guitarist who left because his wife had a baby. And so what, but, during the making of this album, there was like a big split in the band between the band who wanted it to be like a musical project and McFerrin who wanted it to continue to be like a political, philosophical concept. And so, like he said, I wanted it to be like a force for political action and they wanted it to be Led Zeppelin. And so right. while, while they were on tour in the States, they had like such huge fights that McFerrin just left in the middle of the tour and went back to England and the band continued on uh, just playing it as the... as the deviants but without mcferrin and mcferrin mm. returned to england and he bunch of sellouts <laughs> he he did an album with the drummer twink who we've mentioned before ah connections everyone connect we when we were talking about the pretty things we were talking about how twink was coaxed into joining the band after the their original dumb dumb of a drummer left the group because he'd fallen in love with a french girl and just in the middle of recording an album he left them in the lurch so they had to bring in twink <laughs> and like in order to coax him to be a member of the band they had to like give him songwriting credits all the songs that they were doing on the on the album which he didn't even have a part of in writing but he just wanted some sort of like payment for doing the doing the album so uh yeah so twink and then steve peregrine took uh who had been was freshly fired from uh tyrannosaurus rex before they became t-rex he was in the group as it was tyrannosaurus rex with mark bolin and uh so he got fired and so they he did this one-off solo album with these two guys and then when the remainder of the deviants drifted back to england after three months from the states uh they were recruited by twink to form the pink fairies which to make the story a round circle came from a mm -hmm. jamie mandelkow story called pink fairies motorcycle club and all-star rock and roll band which was the name of his short story and also the name of the the group of friends drinking club <sighs> so there, there you go mary okay that, that is the story of them that is the story of them. Wasn't that good? Not the story of them, the song by them. This is the story of the Deviants, I should say. Yes. Anyway, just to be, just to be clear to people who are musically minded. All right, right. Let's give a listen to a song that I think Mary loved, for sure. I'm putting this, okay. down, I'm putting this down in the yes column. This is Already? Jeff, this is Jeff and Maria Muldor, a song from Sweet Potatoes, 1972, the song Knee and Me. Here we go, everyone. Yeah. 
back again mary was my guess right you love this song why would you think that i love this song dad because it's called me and me and it's great it's just such a, it's such a goof it's just a weird goofy song no it, i thought it was pretty fun i'm just curious why you thought that i would love it so much because it's a fun song okay it is a, it is a fun song it's like good time music and then it's a goofy lyric yeah yeah so i thought you'd enjoy well, that's that fair I thought you'd enjoy it. I did. <laughs> I did. There you go. I'm I just, was right. I'm, I was just, Let me you just, just were so, so that. certain that I would love it. Just going to add that to the yes column. And it's not, it's not that I think you're like an aficionado of kneeing people in the groin. I just think that, I just think it's like a fun, it's a fun lyric. It's like, you know, it's sort of an extreme love song. Right. Um, which, and the album, and the album marked the end of the marriage of Maria and Jeff Maldor. So maybe that's, it's a autobiographical song. <laughs> I don't know. I doubt it, though. <laughs> I sincerely doubt it. Uh, so Jeff and Maria Maldar were part of like the East Coast folk scene. Maria Maldar sang in in um, sang in the sort of same clubs that Bob Dylan sang in, or sang in the same clubs that the Holy Motor Rounder sang in around Greenwich Village. She was in the Even Dozen Jug Band, which was kind of like the Love and Spoonful, like good time jug band music of that time period. It's very popular, the idea that you're sort of a roots group. And then she joined the Jim Queskin Jug Band as a vocalisting violinist and that is where she met Jeff Maldor and they married in 1963 and so the jug band performed for about six years or six years after that anyway and had some popularity as a good time music group and then they broke up in 1969 uh, that left the Maldors free to pursue their own musical ventures and the reason Jim Queskin broke up the Jim Queskin jug band is a crazy story all in itself Mary it is a it is an epic story that I can only go into a little bit. I can I highly recommend there's an article about this by a Rolling Stone writer. I think his last name is Dalton. And okay. about this group of people. And it's fascinating. But I also read a book called Astral Weeks. And it was a book by this author talking about the, the 1960s music scene. Or I shouldn't say music scene. The 1960s art scene of Boston in the 60s. I, well, obviously the 1960s art scene. Anyway. I said the same thing twice. I'm sorry, everyone. Sometimes it's fun to be redundant. Um, but yeah, just not just like the music of the time, but the literature, the newspapers, and movies that were made in, the, in in Boston, and even this crazy show called "Thank You, Mr. Silver." Oh man, I wish I could remember the name. It just sounds insane. There's no, there's no. I looked on YouTube one time and I couldn't find any evidence of it. But it was just like this crazy show, like just like this freeform arts show. There's even an episode where you had to have like two televisions to watch it because they did it as a as a two they broadcast it on two different frequencies and so you could pick it up you could pick up both broadcasts at the same time and had things like like an interview with someone where they were facing each other television to television they played ping pong tv to tv 
they had like one person's face split between the two sets. This is a fantastically crazy idea, right? Yeah, it's super weird. Isn't that great though? I don't. It's like it's it's so weird to assume that people would have two TVs to watch something on. I too. know you'd have to like get your friend together, and you would have to like bring your television over to his house. And yeah. you know, to be fair, like people, a lot of people had like smaller televisions in, in those days. So you, you know, there also would have been like people with cabinet TVs, like having to hike this thing over to your friend's house if you really wanted to do this. But you'd have like it as a viewing party, maybe. So you only had like two people do it, and then you. And also, it was a very like very avant-garde show, so it wouldn't have been like everyone who could have done that. But it's just fascinating thing. But anyway, so part of this book is this fantastic history of this of this organization group cult, basically. So the Jim Creskin Jug Band had this banjo harmonica player in it called Mel Lyman, and at some point in the late '60s, he declared himself God, which you know is take some chutzpah. I gotta admire that. But then it does. That's true. But then he like like he like gathered himself around him all these people who yes believed he was god including jim queskin of the jim queskin jug band and so jim queskin decided the jug band was was like fake and phony and wasn't real and he just stopped doing it and he became an acolyte of mel lyman and it's just a fascinating story mary it's fascinating like they bought these they bought these kind of like old tenement buildings in this part of uh, in this area called fort hill Near in in Roxbury in Boston, and now Roxbury was what is called a dark town, was an area where black people lived, and so it was very run down at that time, of course, basically a ghetto, and they were able to buy this place is really cheap, and they just bought these houses, and they lived there. They just lived in squalor for a number of years. They like tore them all apart. They just gutted them and they rebuilt them all inside to make them really nice, and then they um they had like uh, they started a newspaper in Boston called the Avatar. They they ended up like you know obviously they had like a hundred members you know when everyone like pooled their money and they ended up with like a house in in the Riviera in France two houses in Los Angeles a farm in the Midwest a place in San Francisco it's just a, it's just a crazy story I highly recommend people read about it it's the the Lyman fa- the Lyman family cult or the Fort Hill community it's that's their name for themselves and if you look it up. Uh, there's a Rolling Stone article about it. It's fascinating. It talks about the rock and roll, the rock writer Paul Williams, who was like the first guy to recognize like rock criticism of the thing. He started a magazine called Crawdaddy himself. He self-published it. He became a member of this cult, and like at some point, uh, one night, it describes like him being a guard, doing guard duty because they had like a little bit of conflict with the black community in the beginning of when they first moved in there, and so they they had like patrolling guards to protect their areas and stuff like that. And they also patrolled to keep the park space free of other people, which is kind of weird. But anyway, they, um, cause there's this tower that dates back to the, uh, to the revolutionary war as part of Fort Hill. That's why it's called Fort Hill. It was a fort there. And so there's still a tower remaining from the fort. And, uh, yeah, so it tells the story of like him being on guard duty one night and then him like sneaking off to a pile of garbage where he'd hidden a suitcase and then grabbing the suitcase and then running for his, his life to escape this Fort Hill community. And he didn't like stop at the first train station. He, he went three train stations deep to try so he could avoid being recaptured by them. <laughs> it's, just a, it's a crazy story. But yeah. Anyway, but anyway, so Marie and Jeff Mulder escaped this. They did not fall into this particular belief that he was, he was, uh, oh, and then, the interesting thing, then in this article, they're talking to Paul Williams and he says, I still love Mel Lyman and I still want to be with him. You know, it's just crazy, right? Like that's just brainwashing. Like it's so, so crazy how it works. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they, they did not fall for, they moved to, they moved to Woodstock, which was a popular place for, 
for uh, performers at that time. Musicians. You wanted to be near Hen- Bob Dylan. Hence, hence Woodstock. Which wasn't actually at Woodstock, but hence the name of it. Yes, it was planned to be at Woodstock, but it turned out to... Woodstock said, no, we don't want a giant concert here. Move on. So they had it somewhere else. But they Fair. Kept, but they kept the name Woodstock because it, it aligned itself with Bob Dylan and then it made it seem like he was going to be part of it, although he had no interest in doing it. They signed to Reprise Records. And then under the tutelage of Joe, Joe Boyd, our friend Joe, Bo- Joe, Joe Boyd, Nick Drake's former manager it, and producer. Sorry, that yeah. name makes it sound like you can't say bird. I know I can't say, I can't even say Joe Boyd because I have trouble saying it. I keep wanting to say bird. So, uh, and his, uh, his trusty engineer, um, John Wood, they recorded their first album, The Excellent Pottery Pie, which is a really good album. And then they kind of self-produced their, their next album, which was called Sweet Potatoes. And that's where this song comes from. And it's a really great album. Like they were a really, a really great group when they were, these two albums are really fascinating because it, it's like a collection of not just jug band music. They do have a little bit of that to it. And I think Ning Ni has an element of that to it, but also like Dixieland music and, and country music and blues and gospel. They, they just combine all of it into the, into their albums. And it's a really fascinating, sorry, messing with my, my mic here. It's a really fascinating, um, like mix, mix of stuff. Yeah. And really mm-hmm. authentic feeling too. And unlike on the West Coast, where everyone was kind of trapped in the idea of of country rock, they they um, they kind of explored a broader palette of American American music. And I recommend both those albums, uh, Pottery Pie and Sweet Potatoes. They're both really good albums. Um, Billy Mundy is on drums. He played with uh, the Mothers of Invention for a short time before he left to join the the super group called Rhinoceros, which wasn't so super because there's no such thing as a super group that's been any good, really. Uh, so, harmonica player Paul Butterfield is on it. What about what about Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young? Yeah, uh, super group. Yeah, they're kind of a. Did you like? How, did you like how I totally forgot what they were called and you know just what? kept saying and? I was like Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. Wait, I feel like though <laughs> that none of those. I mean, those guys were were kind of known, but like Buffalo Springfield weren't a success. Mm. So you can really call Stephen Stills like coming from like a a powerful position. And neither was Neil Young. His solo album was a flopperoo. That's why he joined uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash for uh, and Young. So. At, well, then it became Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. That's why he enjoyed Crosby, <laughs> yeah. Stills, and Nash. Right. I thought you were going to add N. Young and again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I, I feel like I you're doing the stateroom scene from Night of the Opera. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, they're kind of were a, sort of a super group. David Crosby was kind of well-known from the birds, but he had been fired from them and had done nothing for two years. And then, um, and then Graham Nash had left the Hollies, which were a popular group in England, but weren't really that well known in the States. So they kind of were a super group, but I wouldn't really, they're not really like a combination of a bunch of like, well, I guess that's not really what a they super wa- group is. They wanted to be a super group. That's not really what a super group is. Super group is like, I guess they were a good super group. I guess they were the- They wanted, they wanted to be a super group. They were a good group. You're right. They're, you've, you found the exception that, that disproves the rule. Yeah. Uh, and then also Amos Garrett was also played with him. And he's a great song guitarist, Mary. And you know him. You don't know you know him, but you know him because he did, okay. the, he did the great guitar solo on Maria mm-hmm. Maldar's solo hit, Midnight at the Oasis. Don't know it. You don't know Midnight at the Oasis? I had it on a mix when you were younger. Midnight. No. Well, then I probably know it. Midnight at the Oasis. Mm. Send, send your camel to bed. Mm-mm. You don't remember that one? No. Oh, okay. Nope. It's unfamiliar. All right. Maybe it was a later one that you need you jumped. You weren't driving with me as much then, or something. Um, yeah. So there you go. Oh, and I'll just add one more thing, one more little trivia about it. Was the art for the sweet potatoes was done by Eric von Schmidt, who was a pretty much unknown folk artist, except that he was name checked by Bob Dylan when he did a song called "Baby I'll Follow You Down" on his second album, I think it was. And so he says, "I learned the song from Eric von Schmidt," and then he plays it. 
And so then everyone said, Eric von Schmidt, he must be great. That was it. That Yeah, that's a good way to get known. <laughs> I think so. To be mentioned by Bob Dylan. Yeah. Then you people, you know? the people know who, who you are. Yeah. It doesn't help you much after that, though. You got you to gotta carry the rest of the way. Well, yeah. So, but like, it's pretty good promotion. It's, you can't you can't buy that kind of promotion, you know? You can't, unless you paid him $5 to, to say it. Maybe he did. Yeah, maybe. That's true. So there we go, everyone. That was uh, a song you liked a lot. Well, me, me and me. Well, I, thought it was, I said it was pretty funny. What? I put it in the plus column, so you liked it a lot. All right. Okay. Well, all right. Let's, let's, shall we move on to our next song, sweetie? Or do you have something else you'd like to say about No, no, we can move me? on. Do you have anything you want to say about this song? I keep forgetting to ask you that, actually. I'm sorry. I've been talking. No, no, I've, I've been, I've been, uh, I feel like I've been you, saying things. Okay, okay. It feels like, I just feel like I just get your opinion of it, then I quickly <laughs> move on. Well, as if I'm dreading I don't your, know. Your I feel like comment. It's, it's like tricky in this format because it, it feels more like I'm like listening to, uh, to a, a podcast that you're on rather than <laughs> being part of it, you know? Sorry. It is hard. No, no, no. It's, it's not, okay. it's not your fault. It's just like a different format. It's, yeah. It's yeah. getting used to it. Yeah. Well, feel free to interrupt any time, dear. Okay. I don't mind at all. It's also hard fact, to I'm interrupt waiting, people on I'm, Skype. I'm waiting for you to interrupt. Did you hear that? Yeah. It's hard to interrupt people you heard on Skype. What I, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you find it hard to interrupt people on Skype? Yeah. I think everyone does. Oh. Uh, haven't you ever listened to a podcast where um, people are on Skype and they're all just like saying, what? <laughs> no, I... It's a podcast and they're just like, what? To be honest, I try to avoid these sort of podcasts. That's fair. Just for that reason, I think it is difficult. And in fact, if, if I could make a different thing work on my computer, I would probably use it. Mm. Maybe we'll try Discord yeah. next time or one of those other ones. Oh, sure. I, I didn't know that you could uh, you could video talk on Discord. Yeah, you can. Oh. Hmm. I think you can. Anyway. Know. That's how they did um, That's how they did a, a, a Ian and, and company for the Critical Hit Show. They did a, a Discord version of it where they all had separate windows. Oh, okay. And, uh, did their characters oh sweet okay well good to know i've never used discord i've just heard of it oh okay you know yeah yeah i don't know if it's any better than anything else i just can't make google hangouts work my microphone hmm. won't get accepted but maybe we'll test it yeah. after the show well maybe we can make it work i'll, I'll make you hang out for a bit longer well, i don't know if i can do that but... i think you can <laughs> <laughs> your busy schedule yeah yeah doug and i are having dinner oh at, th- at three well no but like we're, we're gonna keep we're this podcast is not yet over you're right you're right yeah. not by long i know time. No. Okay, uh, let's go into your next song then, dear. All right. This is um, this band is called Kid Rock, not okay, not our not kid, that Kid Rock, not, not that our, Kid Rock though. Not our Kid Rock, that's right. This is a different our Kid, kid rock. rock. Yeah, our. Why kid is rock. he ours? Because he's our generation's Kid Rock. Okay, I have many issues with that statement. One, we are not in the same generation. No, but I mean, our generation of of like the generation we're living in. He's our generation. Okay. He's our generation's Kid Rock. Okay. Secondly, right. yeah. I don't I don't want to have any possession of Kid Rock. I don't <laughs> want him. You don't want to be be a genera- generational but Mary, he, yes. He remade Sweet Home Alabama as a different song. I don't care. Isn't that like that's one of the most fabulous things that ever happened, I heard. I haven't actually okay. heard, I actually don't know the song mm-hmm. very well, but I heard it one time and went, Oh, isn't this Sweet Home Alabama? Uh okay, so this is uh, Kid Rock, but once again, not country not- rap star Kid Rock. This right. is Kid Rock from the seventies. Okay. This is their. Was I have a question? Yeah. Was this Kid Rock an actual like rocking child? Rock. <laughs> yes, that's right. This is an actual. He was rock like a rock star, and was also like a kid. He was like a he was yeah. like a baby genius. This is like a baby genius. He was, and it was the seventies. So what was weird? It was a baby that had big sideburns and a mustache. Right. And he sang this song, which was mm. called "Ice Cream Man" 
It was a, a, it was a single that came out in 1972, backed with the song Dream, Dream, Dream. So let's, let's give a listen to Ice Cream Man, Mary. Okay, let's hear it. Riding down the road like a giant toad in rubber boots All the little children, they run to him, it's the ice cream man Sticks his sticky fingers up and grabs their loot In return, they get a wave or two from the ice cream man And we're back. Mary. Yes. I've got my tally sheet here. Okay. We only, we only have two in the plus column. We have mm-hmm. one one in the meh column and one mm-hmm. in the one in the ech column. Uh-huh. So um, where do you fall on Kid Rock's Ice Cream Man? This feels like a song. Yes. That was when they made it, they were like, this is going to be a song kids are going to love. <laughs> yes. And for children and those children had nightmares for the rest of their lives <laughs> that's, what, that's what i think too oh, really <laughs> yes, that's, why I, that's why i like it so much that's why i think it's... I, my notes my notes were feels like a song that was meant for children but is actually nightmare fuel that's what i wrote I know. coming down the road like a giant toad <laughs> like how is that appealing and <laughs> 
snatches <laughs> snatches away their stuff with grubby fingers. Like oh, I don't know, yeah. it's so weird, isn't it? It's like it's, yeah. there's like a weird it's disconnect. Weird. It's a weird disconnect between between what's actually appealing and what isn't. It's like oh, it's hard to it's hard to explain. It's like to me, it's like have you ever seen the David Lynch film Wild at Heart? I don't think so. Okay, so this is hard to explain. But in the movie, there's like a brief cutaway scene to the Laura Dern character's cousin who loved Christmas. And so it's this guy, played by Crispin Glover, who's crazy anyway, who is dressed in like this tattered, ragged, dirty Santa suit, laying on the floor, like making this weird, crazy noise. And because he's upset about something about Christmas. And it's just like, it's nightmare fuel because he loves, he loves, he loves, he loves Christmas so much that he doesn't want to get out of his Santa suit. And so it's just like this tattered, ragged, greasy dirty wretched thing and yeah and he's an adult and he's an adult and that's christmas and you're like blah and this movie this song has the same feeling to it it's just so it's hilarious to me i just i find it hilarious like this song isn't really a novelty song this song isn't i mean it is a novelty song but it's not it's like unintentional in its effect though i think and it's weird it's a super obscure song mary like this song is so obscure that for like years it was thought to be by a band called clover because all anyone had was this one acetate of, of the song. And all all that was written on it was, it was just scrawled in the label and pen, Ice Cream Man, Clover. And so everyone, was, I guess it's by a band called Clover and it's a song called Ice Cream Man. And then finally someone found an actual single, like a 45 of the original release, which came out on, the, on a record label called called Youngblood International. And then, then they realized it was actually a 45 by a group called Kid Rock. And then... And then it had like credits on it. So then they realized that Kid Rock, it turns out, was the nom de tune of this guy, this songwriter named Tony Taylor, who planned an album of kids-oriented songs to be titled Bang Bang. And the, the name of the group was going to be Kid Rock. And so, unfortunately, Mary, low sales for Ice Cream Man. I know this is hard to believe. Yeah, that's but Low surprising. sales for Ice Cream Man and the subsequent single, Rockabye Blues, meant mm. that the album plans were shelved. But mm. s- several songs were released. Uh, there was a sing was it because there was a, a single in Holland of of Ice Cream Man, but it had a separate B side called Doctor Rock, and then uh, and then um, Rockabye Blues had this, the guess the album title song Bang Bang on it, and then there was one other stray song that came that was found called Aunt Annie's Place, and I love that song actually, and I have that on a different <laughs> collection. So, and uh, because it was so because it was so um, obscure. This, uh, this song kind of got grouped into Toy Town Psych, which it isn't because it came out in 73, kind of past the Toy Town Psych era. But it really does incorporate a lot of elements to it, including like like child child singing, kid singing, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. childish elements of the song, like kid elements of the songs, Ice Cream Man and stuff like that. And then also uh, just the kind of the instrumentation is very light and, and kind of with a harpsichord as well, which was a very key, key part of, of Toy Town. So yeah. It's uh, quite an interesting th- song. I really like it. It's, but I just think it's crazy. I think it's just a nut- yes. nutty song. I just like, I can't understand why anyone would write lyrics like that and think that that would be for kids. I know that you already gave. I know that you already gave like a pop culture reference to what it's like. Yeah. But I'm gonna chime in that it's also like the, um, the episode of BoJack Horseman where Todd and Mr. Peanut Butter come up with a, an idea to um. Where they can have uh, clowns be dentists. 
because kids are uh, scared of the dentist, but they love clowns. Yeah, yeah. So if we have clowns be their dentists, <laughs> then it'll be better. Yes. So they have all these like terrifying clowns doing <laughs> dentistry on children. Yeah, that's the song in a nutshell. It's great. Yeah. This is great. I mean, it's a great song anyway. I really like it, but I mean, I could sing it all day long, but uh, it's uh, definitely not. But like you're... You're a I'm big an weirdo. I'm, an, I'm yeah. not a big weirdo. Well, but I, but I, jury's jury's out. What's that? Sorry, the, the jury's out. The jury's out. Mm. Uh, and of course, then I was curious what Youngblood International was as a, as a record label because I'm always fascinated by small record labels. And it turns out it was a, a label run by this guy named Mickey Dolan, who was okay. who was a who was a singer a keyboardist in the in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, backed a lot of backed a lot of like you know like. Um, can't think of any off the top of my head now, but back to um, the, the kind of British British sixties singers, you know, like Billy Fury, but not Billy Fury, but people like that. And uh, then he um, then he moved on to becoming a songwriter producer, working with Mickey mm-hmm. Most, for instance. And then and then he became a record label runner and producer first with a record label called Strike. And then he formed. And then when that closed because the money people behind it ran out of money, then he started his own label called Youngblood International. And basically, the idea of Youngblood International was to get a hit. And so they didn't really release albums; they just released singles. And so, but their singles were all designed to like exploit a certain market. Which, judging from most of the stuff I've I've seen from the, that came out on it, was basically like the kind of British bubblegum music of that time period, kind of like Edison Lighthouse or or um, well, whoever 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 Tony Barrow was singing for at that time period. That's basically like Brotherhood of Man or whatever. Uh, that's basically the, 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 what they were like looking for was just to cash in on that particular trend, right? So if you could put it a single and, and get enough kids to buy it because it sounded like something that was popular on the radio, then you're, you're aces. The British music scene was a little different than the, the American music scene or North American music scene. They had a weird thing there where they had albums, I think they were called like Top of the Pops, these albums. And what they were, like here we had KTEL, right? And KTEL would repackage hit songs onto collections. So it would license songs from record companies and then put them on a on on a on a too many songs for one lp lp and then put that out in england they did it slightly differently they would hire musicians to imitate groups like who had hit songs in the charts and then they would put those out on albums so you get an album let's say it was called top of the pops and it would have you know like an abba song and it would have uh whoever a t-rex song it would have whatever and then you'd buy it you'd be like oh look at all these great songs i love all these songs but it wouldn't say they were by t-rex it would just have like the names of the songs on it then you take it home and you put it on and it would turn out there wasn't by any of those bands it was just a bunch of people imitating those bands mm. i bought one when i was in england because i was so fascinated by the idea i found it in a thrift store there and i took it home with me and it was so great because it had a version it had a group imitating the beatles from their live at the hollywood bowl album so it had a group imitating the Beatles with fake crowd noises so that it was like a live album. <laughs> it's just nuts. Anyway, let's go on to the next song. That was, a weird, mm-hmm. that was kind of a weird detour, but that's just something that I think is strange. Okay. Um, do you want to listen to Judy Hensky and Jerry Esther? I mean, I guess we have to. It's on this album. It's on the mixtape. This is... Uh, yeah, I know. It's the next song. This is, <laughs> this, is from, this is from their... I think this is a great album. This is from Farewell Aldebaran from 1969. Coincidentally, uh, also came out like the GTOs on the uh, Frank Zappa's Bizarre slash Straight label. And this is Judy Hensky and Jerry Esther with St. Nicholas Hall. Here we go, everyone.
Saint Nicholas Hall sends greetings to all of the lambs who have strayed from the fold. A message sent from Sister Content. You remember her as your dean. She is mean and incredibly old. Give to the building fund the chapel's ramshackle and small. God's in his home on high. We are not afraid to die. We need new texts for zoology. Sisters never complain. Not one convert will go there again. But to help the priests in the scandalous East, I have asked just a few of you girls. God's glory. So, Mary, I'm going yes. to I'm going to assume from your tone of your voice from the last mm-hmm. little bit that you are not mm-hmm. on Team St. Nicholas Hall. Um, I just want to say something to the audience quickly. Sure. To the listeners. Yeah. Which is that you guys, you have the option to skip these songs, but I don't, I don't have that, you know? <laughs> like, I have to listen to all of them, the yeah. whole thing, yeah. the whole entire song, sure. no matter how long it is, no matter how long it feels. <laughs> Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. So you, you are on the plus side on this song is what you're telling me, actually. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Good, uh, good, good call there. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, but I, I do think that this song, because it's, is it a Christmas song? Nope. It's a, okay, because they're talking about it's a Christmas. Mo- it's, no, they're talking about, well, they're talking about Christmas a little bit. It's more of a, mo- a, mo- a mockery of, of religious songs. It's more of a mockery of a, of, a, of a letter you would get from your, from a Catholic church, your local Catholic church, exhorting you to send them money to support various things that are going on. It's sort of like a church bulletin, sort of a, by, in song form. So it's telling you they need money to help fix the roof at a convent in Spain, and and uh, right. that there, you know, some sort of a, a concert event is coming up soon for the Christmas concert, I guess. And yeah, it's a I don't know, I think it's a it's a fun lark. And not every not every song in the album is like that. The album is kind of interesting because it's basically it's I think it's nine songs long, and it's, it sounds like nine different bands doing the songs. Besides the singer, who's Judy Hensky, she has a very distinctive that really kind of powerful voice of hers. Uh, okay. Yeah. So she was a she was a well known folk singer. She was called the Queen of the Beatniks in her heyday in the early sixties. She um she was like on the Judy Garland show, and in fact they liked her so much they offered her a full t- a full time slot on the Judy Garland show to come back week after week and perform, which she turned down because she didn't want to get uh, kind of typecast as a TV performer uh, kind of in a situation. She was too cool for that. She's too hip. And her husband Jerry Esther was a member of the Modern Folk Quartet until the group broke up, and the Modern Folk Quartet. Quartet, which I thought they would be kind of interesting. I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. A modern folk quartet. I wonder what they sound like. So I got one of their albums and I listened to it. And what they sound like is like every other folk quartet of that time period. Like four guys heartily singing songs. Hey, ho, the wagons roll. That's not modern. Anyway, so um, he, he sang with them until they broke up. Then he moved into production. Uh, working with the association, his brother Jim Yester was in the association, so he produced them. Uh, produced the Turtles and Tim Buckley, which he produced for. Uh, oh no, not at that point. He produced them for. I guess he was with Electra that time, when he because he did uh, Hello Goodbye and Tim Buckley with uh, Tim Buckley, and then uh, he was then invited to join the Love and Spoonful to take the place of Zelianowski, who had been pushed or fired slashed quit the band. Uh, because of, I think we talked about that when we were talking about Love and Spoonful, where he got he got busted for for marijuana possession, and in order to get out of it, and it was they're foolish foolish for them. They didn't bring like get a call a lawyer, so they he named names, and that kind of destroyed his reputation in the hip community, and so the Love and Spoonful had no choice but to to get rid of him. Also, so uh, John Sebastian was mad at Zell for other reasons, uh, and so then when. Uh, when the Love and Spoonful then broke up, John Sebastian left the group in 1968. Yester and Hensky moved back to Los Angeles, specifically to Laurel Canyon, where they became friends with Frank Zappa, uh, and par- partly because Hensky and Zappa shared the same manager, Herb Cohen. And so Zappa suggested to Hensky that she put all this verse that she was writing to music, which he kind of thought was really fascinating, and he said, you should make songs out of this. So she and Yester uh, worked on the music together, and this was the first time they'd actually worked together as like... Uh, musically, they were a couple, of course, and had a daughter, but they did not hadn't worked together as, as musicians. So um, Yester shared the production credit with Zelyanovsky because at the time he was producing Zelyanovsky's solo album, Zelyanovsky is alive and well and living in Argentina. And so, so Zell plays on the album, Ry Cooter's on the album, uh, David Lindley's on the album with uh, other members of Kaleidoscope. It has a quite a quite a few people. In different roles in the album, you know, playing uh, Larry Beckett's on the album. He was a longtime collaborator, collaborator with uh, Tim Buckley. But on this song, even though Yester played about a dozen different instruments on the album, for this song, he just played the piano and then this inst- interesting instrument called the chamberlain, 
which the Chamberlain is the American version of the Mellotron. And it actually is the forefather of the Mellotron, I guess you could say. Because the Mellotron has a very interesting history in terms of the Chamberlain. There was a guy who worked for Chamberlain, who invented the Chamberlain, invented this idea. Because what the Chamberlain was, Mary, was a keyboard that had a series of, of taped loops for each key. And when, okay. you, when you press the key, it would activate the tape and it would play an instrument sound. And so Chamberlain actually went to a lot of trouble to get like really good instrument sounds, like the horn sounds were really good and the string sounds were really good. And then it also has vocal sounds as well. But he had a guy, a manager, I think the guy, manager's name was Falson. And this guy pretended that he was still at home. He, he left his radio running in his apartment, mm-hmm. but he left the country and took the Chamberlain with him, a uh, sample Chamberlain with him and took it to England where he got another company in England to make a duplicate version of the Chamberlain, which he then sold as the Mellotron. And so everyone who knows music knows about the Mellotron because that's very famous. The Beatles play the Mellotron, say on Strawberry Fields. It has the, or, and on, um, you know, it has that little kind of flute sound at the beginning of Strawberry Fields. Okay. That's sure. actually played on the Mellotron in the, in the flute hmm. setting. But really the Mellotron was ripped off, was a ripoff of the Chamberlain. And, and when Chamberlain found out about this, he flew to England and confronted the people who were manufacturing it and then had a very long uh, I would say probably angry conversation with his ex salesperson, mm-hmm. and then uh, Mellotron, the company who was making the Mellotron, had to pay. First thing, they had to agree that they wouldn't sell in the United States and Canada. Only Chamberlain mm-hmm. had that as a market, mm-hmm. and then they also had to pay like a licensing fee for using the patent of of, of the Chamberlain and the Mellotron. But yeah, so it's a fascinating instrument. And so when you listen to this song, you can hear like there's that. It's actually the vocal. It's actually the vocals are being played on a keyboard and that's where they have that weird kind of sound where they're kind of like, Oh, Oh, oh you know, it's sort of, it stops playing, you know, it doesn't have like a clean break or, or move up, like move up in, in pitch to the next note. It just stops and the next note starts. It's because it's being played like a keyboard in the vocal setting on, on the, uh, on the, on the Chamberlain. Oh, okay. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a fascinating instrument. Very fascinating. I don't think it was as used as, as cleverly as it was in England though. Like, I feel like there's not a lot of, like, I can't think of too many famous songs that have the Chamberlain in them in uh, American, like, rock history. Whereas in England, you have, like, you know, like, Yes used it extensively, and, of course, the Beatles used it throughout um, the, you know, their their sort of psychedelic phase, Sgt. Pepper, and, 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 uh, uh, I am losing my mind. Strawberry Fields, and then, uh, uh, Magical Mystery Tour. They use extensively use the, the Mellotron. It's just fascinating. Anyway, I'm sorry that you. Uh, I'm sorry that you liked it so much. Okay, our next song. I actually put that in the negative category. <laughs> yeah. The next song is um, Barnes and Barnes. Mm-hmm. Now I know this album because I have this album as Yeah, the Essential Barnes and Barnes, which came out in the year 2000. So it's like, like an anthology of their stuff. And this song is Cats. Which right. I, which Written I, by Andrew Lord, Lloyd Webber. <laughs> That's right. Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. And this one has, um, and this one is actually is from their album, which was called Spaz Chow was the name of the album that it was, that it was actually from, but I have it on this anthology. So let's give it a listen, everyone. This is, this is Cats from Barnes and Barnes. Here we go. Thank you. 
And we're back. Mary, you like cats, right? The... The animal. Animal? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I do. Also, Dad, Tim Rice didn't write cats. Oh, I thought he you did the lyrics for it. No, no, no. Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote the songs, and yeah. the lyrics were taken from the poems by T.S. Eliot. Oh, I didn't realize they were taken verbatim. I thought they were. Uh, I thought they were adapted by Tim Rice. I, know I think that they were adapted a bit, okay. but no, Tim Rice didn't work on it. Oh, okay, because he did like Jesus Christ Superstar and other stuff. Mm, like, yeah, he did work with Andrew Lloyd Webber on other stuff, but yeah. not. Okay. Okay. On cats. I stand corrected on cats. What do you? How do? You, how do you feel about cats? The the musical, Mary. I've not seen the musical. Okay. So you saw the movie. I have seen the movie okay. from last year. All right. Uh, the disaster movie. Silly, yes. <laughs> okay. Very silly. Yeah. It's a very silly movie. That feels um, like that also feels like a nightmare fuel for children. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think by the time that we saw it, yeah, um, we definitely got the best version of it. Oh, okay. Because for the people who saw it, because there was it for the people who saw like the first version of it, like the premiere, that was a different version than was released later. Ah, uh, I see. They just so they the original. Like, yeah, they did some corrections and then like resent it out to theaters. So if you saw it earlier in theaters versus later in theaters, you would have seen a better CGI. Okay, okay. Because they were working on the CGI like literally until the day before it was, or like so dumb. Yeah, like the the night before it was released. So dumb. And yeah. It's a yeah. That, the whole history of that film is terrible. Yeah, it's pretty silly. But uh, um, so you, but so you, you, you love the musical Cats. You not what I'm saying. You like the animal Cats. Yes, I do like Cats. And They're you cute. also enjoy the Barnes and Barnes song Cats. It was pretty good. It was fun. Yeah, it's a fun song. This is an actual novelty song. Not as good as Memories, but you know the song by Barnes and Barnes Memories. No, the song from the musical Cats. Oh, memories. I've never seen the musical or the movie. <laughs> but Cats, you know so. the song Memories. No, I don't. I don't. Everyone does. Is Everyone that, knows that. Is I that had the one that goes music box as a kid? Is that the one that goes midnight or something like that? Yeah. Midnight and the kitties are sleeping. I only know that version because David Letterman would sing it all the time on his show. Oh, okay, yeah. He sang a made-up version of it that he insisted was called "Midnight." The kitties are sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's called "Memories." Okay. It's like the it's like the song from Cats. Interesting. Memories. Yeah. So, um, Mary. Yes. Barnes and Barnes. Uh, were twin brothers, Art mm-hmm. and Artie Barnes, who were from the country. I'm, I'm sorry. Who were from I'm the, sorry. Yep, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. They're twins, and their names were Art and Artie. Yeah, Art and Artie Barnes, uh, from the country. Were of, they? Of, what sorry? Were their names shortened for Arthur? No. Were they both named Arthur Barnes? They were both actually originally they were both Art and Art Barnes, but when they reached some fame and near the end of the eight, near the end of the seventies, they the one changed his name to Artie so that he could differentiate himself from his brother. That is crazy. Uh, and they were from the country of Lumania. So, okay. Um, That's not a real place. <laughs> they are actually childhood friends, Robert Hamer okay. and Bill Moomy. Billy Moomy, yeah. most famous as Will Robinson from the classic TV show Lost in Space. Mm-hmm. He later was in the, he later made an appearance in the revival of Lost in Space on Netflix as a character, not as Will Robinson. Though. Okay. Cause I was, I was beginning to think that this was about um, a woman who had um, 23 sons and she named them all Dave. <laughs> oh, have I ever played for you that version of that? It's uh, Bob Dylan. It's like Bob Dylan singing Dr. Seuss. And he, oh yeah. And no, I've heard that? that one. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, that's very good. You can probably find it on YouTube, everyone. Maybe I'll link to it on YouTube. 
I'm not going to play it now because it is an actual novelty song, unlike this, what I'm doing. Although this is a novelty song. Uh, yeah, so they f- and they were childhood friends that liked to like do stuff together. They made short films on their Super 8 cameras, which they called art films. And then as a joke, they started call- calling each other art. So they became art and art. And then they took the name sure. Barnes from a Bill Cosby bit called Revenge, which featured Cosby's nemesis, Junior Barnes. And then in 1979, they've been doing this for a long time. They would, they would like, write they would make silly songs and just record them on a two-track cassette deck but in 1979 hamer a big fan of the dr demento show convinced mumi that they should choose a couple of songs and then re-record them properly which by properly they meant instead of a two-track they used their a uh, four-track deck and and they uh they recorded them properly and they sent them into the dr demento show they cho- so they chose two of their songs one was boogie woogie amputee and the other was fish heads have you ever heard Fish Heads, Mary? You don't, don't, you don't have to. I think so. You don't have to. It's one of those songs that if you're a weirdo, as you like to call me, then you, mm-hmm. know, yes. then you, know, that song, then you know the song Fish Heads. If you're okay. not a weirdo, then you maybe don't know the song Fish Heads. Right. But if you like were a person that liked kind of comedy stuff or weird things when you were a teenager, somehow you heard Fish Heads. Me personally, because I used to watch a local video show that was came out of, came out of Seattle called... Um, Fallout videos because I watched that they happened to play this on that show one time it was on like at one in the morning at night and I would stay up and watch it and they played the song one night and I was like that was insane so that's how I first learned about Barnes and Barnes so I bought I bought the CD because I liked that song and then I heard this song and I thought this is a good song to put on a mixtape so like I was saying Cats comes from the duo's second album Spaz Chow which is Lumanian for born to suffer at the hands of women and make music. So apparently they have they have a very compact kind of like kind of like German where you can put like a lot of meaning into one word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I think is kind of funny is the album contain features a song called "And Other Things Too," bracket ease the pistol bracket, and it was a song written by Billy Mumy for his estranged girlfriend Eileen, and they eventually got back together, married, and had two children, and they're still together to this day. Oh wow, good. It's pretty good nice. For that. It's a good happy ending to that song. Hmm. And the other thing about Billy Moomy, Mary, is that he is in two mm-hmm. episodes of the Rockford Files. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say it was is that he is the founder of Barnes and Nobles or no, the co-founder. Of he Barnes is not Nobles. the co-founder of Barnes and Nobles, but he is in two episodes oh, okay. of. But the other of, one is one of my all-time favorite shows, Rockford Files. You do love Rockford Files. He's in the pilot episode. He plays the brother of Lindsay Wagner, mm-hmm. who is uh, mixed up in a in a in a kind of a questionable situation, and he's very crabby. And then he played a an artist, a street artist who's selling his paintings and he has information, but he keeps making Jim Rockford buy his paintings in order to tell him information. And then he makes Jim Rockford so, take them away. It's not enough just to pay for the painting. I also has to keep it. So yeah, it's a good character. So yeah, yeah. He did a lot. He did like 400 TV shows. Oh, wow. He's done a lot. He's, done, he's worked for a, long, a lot and he's been a working actor for a long time since he was six, I believe. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So there you go, Mary. That was Barnes and Barnes. And you're right. One of them was the founder of Barnes and Noble. Right. Art or art? It was art. Oh, okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. Your guess was correct. All right. Let's go into the next song, which I'm going right. to preemptively put in the negative column right now. Okay. Mary, Mary did not like this song. So okay. Here, can you hear my pen go? Here we go. Yeah, I can, I can hear it. I can hear it. It's, again, good fully work. Sure, sure, sure. Here we go. There you go. In the, in the, no, in the non-column, we're going to listen mm-hmm. to everyone. This is, uh, this is what I guess is... Uh, I didn't believe... I didn't understand this, but I guess is a select taste... This is Cantham 
from their great album Charisma, mm-hmm. and this is which is a form of charisma, but it's more than charisma. It's charisma. This is Father and Son. Here we go. There's nothing so fine as a father and son Uniting in business together Spending their time doing their work Sticking through fair and ill weather It can't be tough to balance figures This is no pancake breakfast Can't you see? Hi, Dad. So, Mary, what were your notes on Father and Son? When this song started, I could not control it, but I audibly (laughs) sighed. I was like, I was driving in my car by myself, (laughs) and the song started, and I was like... (sighs) (laughs) And I think that about Uh, sums it up. Oh, man. But it's a, I do think I, it's a fun song. I do, think, I do think it's better than I kissed all the girls at the parties at the party. Yes. Yes. Which I also love. I know you do for its epicness and its inappropriateness. I love it all around. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think the song is lots of fun. It's about a father and son working together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great. It's great fun. There's a video that accompanies it as well. Right. It's done sort of like a children's show video and um, yeah, it's good. That's all I'm going to say about this song. Uh, we already talked about Cantam. Uh, we'll say one thing, though. They do have an mm-hmm. important function in this episode, Mary. Oh. CanCon. Yes. True. CanCon. Got to get gotta get that CanCon. <laughs> or else we'll lose our, our funding from the CBC. We, we will lose our funding. But yes, I really I uh, really do enjoy CanTam. Let me just say let me just say about CanTam that, you know. Mm-hmm. That you I, love them. Oh, I do like them a lot. and But I'm a fan. There's a, there's a Beach Boys album. It's basically a Brian Wilson solo album featuring Beach Boys called The Beach Boys Love You. And it's an album that's Brian Wilson basically just by himself playing an organ and singing songs. And then he brings in his brothers and they add other add, add some other stuff. But it, it's just like a really simple album of, 
a very instrumentation and that's where i think cantam were like drawing their inspiration from from and i kind of know that because i i i have beach boys bootlegs and i know that they did a version of shorten and bread and i know that cantam covered that version of shorten and bread on on charisma so i know that's where they're drawing from and I, i think if you like that beach boys album then you should like cantam but if you don't like that beach boys album then maybe you don't you won't like cantam you won't see the the fun of this idea of this cabaret group with its roots in this kind of mid seventies oddball Beach Boys album. And if that, you know, and if you want to call me a weirdo for that, Mary, you can. I know you. I do. do. Oh, you do. I was gonna say I know you don't, but I guess you. Do. No, I do. I do I want to call do. you a weirdo, just in general, not like for this specifically. <laughs> Thanks, dear. Oh, you're welcome. All right, so let's. This is inadvertent, but we're heading into a, I think, a sad part of the show now. This is a, a song. But I guess we're gonna say this is kind of a goodbye song. To Adam, yeah. to Adam Schlesinger, who passed yeah. away last week from from uh, complications due to coronavirus. Yeah, ended up on a ventilator and did not recover. It's sad. Mm-hmm. So, but let's remember how talented he was. Yes, he was and very, how many great songs. And how many great he songs and Fountains of Wayne yeah. and and his work on Crazy Ex Girlfriend as well. Crazy Ex Girlfriend is great too, and his work in the film That Thing You Do, which is the, mm-hmm. the song That Thing You Do is a great song. This fits so totally what he needed to do for that for that movie where he needed to have a song that could be listened to, you know, over and over again and you not get bored of it. That's pretty right. hard to do, to write a song of a particular style, you know, Beatlesque song that's not going to bore you to tears after you've heard it four or five times because it you know, has to be simple. It has to fit this kind of style of it. And he was clever enough to be able to do that. So, yeah. Incredibly talented. And this is one of my favorite songs by them. This is Red Dragon Tattoo. Did we play the song already, Mary? Did you do this song already? I believe I've played the song already. Yeah, I, th- I thought so. So we're going to hear one more time. Mary's already done it, but we'll listen to it one more time. This is Fountains of Wayne. Sweet, sweet Fountains of Wayne with Red Dragon Tattoo. Here we go. Three. 
And we're back. And Mary, I've already put your mark in the plus column for the song. I know that you love Fountains of Wayne. Yes, I love the song so much. And we won't go into it too much just because it's, it's, it is very sad, the circumstances around playing it right now. Uh, it's too bad, but yes. But as a celebration of someone who I think is was a pretty great musician, it's... Uh, it is, it is nice to be able to play it this week anyway. Because it would have been nice just to play it anyhow, or play something by them anyway. And it's just by pure happenstance, it just happened to be mm-hmm. in, in the in the, in the the show, in the mixtape. So it's very nice. All right. So we're heading into the, the last bit of last bit of the, the mixtape. This is uh, our ultra penultimate song, The Association with Broccoli from their self-titled album from 1969, The Association. Here we go. Are you ready, Mary? Yes, I am. Here we go. Broccoli, I really dig its steam. Broccoli, just plain with cheese or cream. I like to eat it with my mouth, it tastes so good. I like to eat it with my mouth. It's my favorite food Broccoli It grows right from the ground Broccoli I even make sound A favorite Atlantean dish They thought it was the end I'm a turning you on, my friend. I'm a turning you on, my friend. Broccoli. Uh, the boys have asked me to uh, say a few words about broccoli. Well, I don't really know a lot about broccoli, but I do know what I like. And broccoli is it. All right, Mary. Now, mm-hmm. I know that you do not like the vegetable broccoli. I like broccoli. Oh, you do? I don't like raw broccoli because oh. i'm not a monster yeah, I don't but like, i like i don't like raw like broccoli, well yeah. cooked oh okay no like if someone puts a vegetable tray in front of me and it just has raw broccoli on it like that's not getting eaten <laughs> but i do like broccoli in food if oh, it's cooked okay. well okay good oh that's good here okay so then then you like the song Street then fries you like the song in then? pasta well yeah i do uh well i thought that the song was pretty fun yeah and also pretty accurate in what way because i like broccoli oh and then it's good with cream it's good with... I think they said cream cheese. Cream cheese? Yeah, it's good with cream cheese. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what they were saying. Yeah, yeah. Instead, it's good with cream cheese. And also, it's not my favorite vegetable, though. No, not my favorite vegetable either. But it's really good in a stir-fry, you got to admit, because it takes all the... Yeah. It gets all the flavor in it. Mm-hmm. That's what I love in a stir-fry. One thing that recently um, I had for the first time that I thought was kind of weird at yeah. first, but then yeah. I was like, no, I'm into this, was... Um, was... Uh, sorry broccoli as part of a um what's it called oh my goodness uh 
this. Um, my brain's not working right now. Okay. When you go to a restaurant and you get like an assortment of like lightly fried uh, vegetables and shrimp. Okay. And prawns. Yeah. There's a name for it. It's I've lost it for some. Oh, tempura. Tempura. Hmm. Okay. So usually when you go to, or not usually, usually when I go to a sushi restaurant, I get tempura because I like it a lot. Um, and yeah, recently I've gone to a couple places that have had broccoli. And at first I was kind of like, broccoli, tempura. And then I was like, yeah, no, this is good. <laughs> it's like a weird thing to have as tempura. Yeah, it does. Because usually, traditionally tempura is like a sweet potato. Yeah. And, um, and like a potato sometimes yeah. and like carrot and sometimes uh green beans okay but broccoli i was like i don't know but no it was pretty good the only thing that's weird about it is that the tempura batter gets caught in the in all the little branches yeah yeah it and doesn't get um in the leaves doesn't the really tree. get cooked it gets yeah it doesn't really get the broccoli like, tree yes exactly it doesn't really get cooked very well because it's kind of stuck in there but that's all right huh yeah so mary i was just reading a well so despite coming off of this is by the association this is their kind of like their last hurrah, this album, is how I think of it as. And uh, so they had just done the soundtrack for Good- Goodbye Columbus, which is a good song, good- Goodbye Columbus. And this album this also features the wonderful Goodbye Columbus cast off, Goodbye Forever, which was originally called Goodbye Columbus as well. Both, long- both songs were written by the association, both by two different songwriting teams in the band, and both were competing to get their song into the movie. And then they chose the version that became Goodbye Columbus in the film. And so then they changed Goodbye Columbus and changed it to Goodbye Forever so they could use it on the album. But it's also a great song on the album as well. Uh, but even though they had been picked to do like this hit movie, the association were already on like the downward slide of their career. Like they were already had peaked and they were kind of heading out the door by this point. And I was just reading this book by a musician slash critic or music journalist whose name escapes me now, I'm sorry to say, but he plays in a band called Saint Etienne, an electronica act, whose album I once bought, I once bought an album by them, and I took it home, and I wasn't sure about the album, so I carefully peeled open the cellophane, took the album out without ripping the cellophane at all, listened to the CD, decided it wasn't for me, slid it back into the cellophane, carefully glued the cellophane shut, and then returned it back to the store. No lie. Yeah, so he wrote this really good book, though, called, it's called um, Yeah, 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 P- The History of Pop from Bill Haley to Beyonce. And in the in the book, so it's quite an extensive, you know, history of, of, mu- of kind of overview of music. It's very good. But it only covers the Bs. It only covers the Bs, that's right. And Or it only covers the B-sides. Oh! No A-sides. No A-sides. <laughs> uh, but he makes this really interesting point, and he's talking about Monterey, the Monterey Jazz Festival, or Monterey Pop Festival, I should say. And... He says it was like a demarcation line in in musical history where where even though like John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas was part of the organizing committee that put it on, it like spelled the end of the Mamas and the Papas as as a as having like a voice in in popular music and the association who also played there and to some degree the Birds. A lot of bands that played there kind of lost their cultural coolness. And were replaced by like Jefferson Airplane and Jimi Hendrix and The Who. Like those are the bands that came out of the Monterey Pop Festival and kind of, and sort of, you know, kind of re, re, I don't know how you say it. They, they turned the ship in another direction and the critical ship, the critical ship moved away from. They rebranded. Yeah. They rebranded rock and roll. It was no longer about, you know, pop, you know, they sort of like 
like up to Monterey, like the association, believe it or not, were cool. Like a song like Windy was a cool song. Like people listened to that song, not just like, not just mums and dads in their kitchen, but like kids listen to the, win- the song Windy. You know the song Windy, right? Do, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course I know Windy. Yeah. Isn't that the association's like most popular song? Probably. Yeah, probably their biggest hit. And written by Ruthann Friedman. And they, uh, or Frieden, I should say, Ruthann Frieden. And yeah, after that, they're, you know, they kept making albums, but they had peaked. They had peaked. And this album is a sign of it. Also, this album has a lot of, it has its feet in the, in the country rock genre, which, as I've said before, and I will say again, was not, was, it was, just, it was a non-starter for bands in the 60s. Like, if you weren't, if you were anyone else besides Bob Dylan, you could not put out a country album and have a hit album. Yes, Bob Dylan, with, Bob Dylan did it with Nashville Skyline, but he is the only one. The International Submarine Band, the Flying Burrito Brothers, the Birds, the Association, Dillard and Clark. I could go on. None of these bands, <laughs> none of these bands had a hit in the country rock genre. It wasn't until the Eagles came along, sanded off the corners, and added the goofy element of them dressing up like cowboys, you know, as like outlaw cowboys, and giving it like a patina of coolness, the country rock had a slight foothold in, in music. And even then, they gave it up after two albums and moved in a much more rocky direction and got rid of their country guitar, or country, more more kind of country-oriented musician in the band. Bernie Ledden was, was kicked out. So it, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it was just not, it wasn't a starter. But it was irresistible, apparently, at that time. Everyone, everyone on the West Coast wanted to be a cowboy. So, yeah. So- I'm not. Here's my one question about this song, though, Mary. Is it mm-hmm. mentions the song as broccoli being Antillean in or in origin? Like I'm wondering what the what uh, what sorry Antillean in origin, like Antillean, like and Antla- like from the city of Atlantis. Oh, like, oh, okay, yep. Like I'm just wondering where, why, why that. I mean, wait, I'm I guess, sorry. Was it wait, la- wait, 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 yeah. dad, 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 yeah, stop. Sure. Did you say Atlantis? Yeah. Not Atlanta. No, Atlantis, Atlantean. Yeah. Okay. Atlantis, like, like the one under the ocean. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Let me, let me look up Atlantean on my phone because I'm pretty sure that it means that it means. Let's just see. Ant. Oh, what am I doing? <laughs> that was a that was a moment. I was. What are you, re- do? I was what are you doing? <laughs> I wrote it as a post in Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> did you post it? No, I did not. Thank goodness. Oh, okay. <laughs> I I get so anxious about that. Like when you're looking up something on Facebook, when you're like looking up like a page or whatever that you just like type it as your status and post it instead of like typing it and searching it. So yeah, Mary, Atlantean is mm-hmm. a reference to Atlantis. Hmm. Okay. So he says broccoli is Atlantean. I just think I was wondering why. Was it like a joke? I guess it was a joke that it was connected well, to Atlantis. Well, I mean, it is a novelty song. I guess it is a novelty song. Oh, the chickens are looking over here, Mary. Well, what do they want? I don't know. I don't know what they want. They're just kind of walking around staring at me. I don't think they see me, though. I hope not. They have, like, evil hooded eyes. And I watched uh, Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom last night. Now I'm scared of chickens because they're clearly related to... Uh... Anyway, okay. Let's go into the next song, dear. Okay. And I... Let's hear the next song. Let's... <laughs> okay, dear. Thank you. This is... Uh, the band's called Moniker. The movie's called Hunt for the Wilder People. The soundtrack album is also called Hunt for the Wilder People. And the yes, song is the called, soundtrack albums often are. And the song is called Trifecta, bracket, Ricky Baker song, bracket. Ready to hear it, Mary? Yes. Let's go.
Hi. Hi. So, um, Mare, where did this song fall in your uh, yes, no? I I got super excited when this song started. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, I was like, I was not expecting it. And I was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I was so excited. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. I oh, was... sorry. Can I just, sure. I have to let Scout out of the bedroom. Okay. She's... I think she needs to go outside, so yeah, I'm going to pawn her off to Duncan. Just hold on one sec. Dogs need to go outside sometimes, you know? Yep. All right, so... Um, you know how you, you know how dogs... You know how dogs is. Do I? I do know how dogs is. So you were excited You were excited by this by this song? Yeah, I was really excited by this song. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, it's... It was... Uh, well, the band Moniker have actually scored uh, two other film... Or uh, two other films for um, Taika Waititi. Uh, oh, uh, what we do in the shadows? Eagle versus shark and boy. Okay, we're both. Oh, okay. So his first, him. his yeah. first two three movies. For, I guess. Oh uh, uh, no, Hunt for the Wilder People comes out after came out after What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, does it? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The the so the band moniker it's uh, made up of composer musicians Lucas Buddha, Samuel Scott, and Conrad Wed, and they also perform as a band called the Phoenix Foundation, which is separate from their their work because as moniker they are composers for TV and movies. But then as the Phoenix Foundation, they are a band that plays concerts and stuff like that. And so they separate right. it that way. In the movie, the song is sung by Bella, the mother, the step, the, I guess the foster, foster mother. mother of Ricky Baker. Mm-hmm. And it's his birthday. He's a boy who's been neglected. His boy has been in this, in this foster system in New Zealand and is, has been... He's, yeah. He's a bad, we, he's, he's a bad egg. <clears throat> But also he's, he's been mistreated. He's been mistreated. Yeah, he's well. the the foster system has not been very good to him. Yeah. And so he's very suspicious of these people that he's, he's who are now fostering him. But he's slowly kind of won around by Bella's expansive love for him. And on his birthday, she pulls out a little toy keyboard at the table and plays him this song. And she sings it for him and then they both sing it together. And, and it's great. And it's such a great heartbreaking moment in the in the in the film. It's it's so great. And so And for like for like four years straight after you guys saw this movie, you and Eve would just walk around the house singing this song. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> that is very true. And, and it's such a, it's such a great move, move, movement or moment, sorry. It's such a great moment at the end of the film when this song comes on and it's just like this version of it. And it's like a celebration of the, of Ricky Baker. And it just feels like the, it feels like it just caps the movie so perfectly. And if you haven't seen Hunt for the Wilder People, I highly recommend it, fellow listening party goers, because it is a very good, very good film. So there we go, Mary. Do, yes. you, do you have something else I you'd like to say about film. it? No, it's a really good movie. And a good song. Yes. All right. Here's our last song, everyone. It's our little side ender. It's the ultimate song, as they say. Uh, this is The Carpenters. And let's just talk about the song before we uh, play it, Mary. I want to talk about it before we play it. So this, okay. comes, this comes from the, their, um, their fourth album, which was called A Song for You. It came out in 1972 and it's kind of a concept album. So the song, so they, it's bookended by the song, a song for you. It's sung at the beginning of, of it. And at the end of it, each side is comprised of songs that are kind of thematically to get the same. Right. Okay. To a degree. It's not like a super hard and fast concept album. It kind of plays fast and loose with the idea of it. And uh, so this song is the, the end to side one. And it kind of, it kind of acts as like a bit of a, a breather between side one and side two. And that's what this was intended as when I put it on this mixtape. And so it's written by Richard Carpenter and it's sung by okay. Karen and Richard. And now let's give okay. it a listen. So this is intermission 
from A Song for You from 1972. Here we go. And we're back. Not not a very long song, but I think nope. rather I think rather charming. What do you think, Mary? I I thought it was pretty cute. I thought it was pretty pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and my notes were same. <laughs> the same, cute, funny. Same. Oh, no, same. Just oh, same. I have to go to the bathroom. Just the word same. Like yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Like I have to feel to go to the bathroom, and I will feel better after I go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of a. It's sort of. It's very cute. And uh, once again, a band re- not really known for their the novelty element of their performances. Although, if you watch live things with them, they seem to be. Uh, they seem to have a lot uh, more fun than than uh, they do on their albums. I, I don't. I'm not going to go too much into the history of the Carpenters because I feel like everyone knows who Richard and Karen Carpenter are. But what's interesting to me is how young they started playing together like like um they were signed to uh, uber or super session bassist joe osborne's record label he had a short-lived record label and they were signed to it karen carpenter was 15 years old when they signed to her to that label holy moly i know and there's 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 like demo track stuff of them playing together and like they originally started off as like kind of a jazz court or they started off as jazz players she played drums and he played piano and then they would have like either horn or bass players with them and stuff like that. And they performed as the Richard Carpenter Trio. And they did that for a number of years, but they, they couldn't get signed by anyone. And so then they kind of joined up some other people in the LA area and they started a band called Spectrum. And RCA were really interested in them. And so RCA got them to do some demos, gave them some money for demos. And so they recorded some demos for RCA and RCA tur- just turned it down, didn't, didn't, wasn't interested in them. Okay, I've said it before, but I feel like the Carpenters were the the group that took Sunshine Pop and made it popular. Like they they were able to like you know make it so that it was. I think they simplified it a bit and they kind of made it more mass marketable. I don't think they did that intentionally. I think that's just the way their musical tastes were. And and why I say that is because one of their very first hits was "We've Only Just Begun." And now I've said before, like one of the one of the elements Sorry. of Sunshine. That's okay. One of the elements of Sunshine Pop that that's really important that people often overlook is its connection to jingle rating in the in L.A. And that's what we've only just begun was it was a jingle for a bank commercial, and it was just a single line we've only just begun. And that's all it was. And Richard Carpenter heard it and he said, "Oh, this would be a great song." And so he contacted the songwriters who were Billy Nick or Roger Nichols, sorry, Roger Nichols and Paul Williams. And he got them to write a full version of the song. And Roger Nichols is interesting because he was a real mover and shaker in the Sunshine Pop uh, scene. He did a great album called Roger Nichols and a Small Circle of Friends, which is just like one of the kind of standout Sunshine Pop albums. And then he moved it, you know, he, but he also was a jingle writer. And, and that, that, so, you know, and so I feel like that connection, that kind of passing of the torch to the Carpenters is really kind of what took Sunshine Pop and made it into something that was commercially viable. But before they were successful, they were, you know, trying to get a record label. So they were with RCA, but because they weren't like a crazy psychedelic rock band, they just couldn't get a purchase in the scene, in the music scene. So they started this, they kind of started this band called Spectrum. And I'll just tell you who was in the band. So it was Richard Carpenter, obviously, playing electric piano and doing background backing vocals. And he produced and arranged the track. Uh, Karen Carpenter, of course, did the lead vocals and played drums. John Bettis and Gary Sims played guitar and vocals. And now John Bettis, 
and Richard Carpenter worked together for many years together. Um, John Bettis did lyrics for him, and Richard Carpenter would do the music. And that this is an example of their work together. This is uh, their first song, Richard Carpenter doing the music and John Bettis doing the lyrics. They had bass and vocals by Danny Woodhams, and then an extra vocalist named Leslie Johnston. This is from, I have this box set of, of Carpenter songs. That's why I have this. And this is from the, the notes on the, in the box set. And I copied these verbatim because I think it's so interesting. So Richard Carpenter said, Not able to afford any more studio time, the group, now called Spectrum, and numbering six, found itself several months later in the Carpenter home for the recording of the next demo track. This was accomplished utilizing Karen's and my portable two-track Sony 200. Accompaniment was recorded in the living room on one track. We then played this back in the bathroom and recorded our vocals on the remaining track in a futile attempt at some echo. Originally written as an instrumental in 5-4 time, all I can do is one of the first of my songs to which John supplied lyrics. This recording is a transfer of the original tape, and after 24 years, the echo has finally been supplied. So I'm going to play this song just because the Carpenter song I played was so short. I just want people to hear the song because it's really good. And I just want to remind everyone that it was played in the living room and then sung in a bathroom and give the song a listen. So here we go, everyone. Mary, did that sound like a song that was recorded in a bathroom? No, no, it did not sound like a song that was recorded in the bathroom. <laughs> I know, it's crazy, right? It's, amazing, mm. it's an amazing, elaborately good performance. Uh, uh, yeah, they're just a great band. Great band, the Carpenters. If uh, uh, Maybe I'll... Oh, I should post some more links. I'll post a link for that one, too. What the heck? I'm going to get all linky-posty on this uh, episode, as it's called. So, so there we go, everyone. That was... Also, I just want to say, yeah. I looked up the Carpenters, Yeah. because I was like... I was like, oh, for some reason I thought that they were a couple, but they're siblings. Yeah, they're siblings. Uh, Karen Carpenter died so young. Oh, I know. She was, when, when, okay, when they recorded this song, Mary? She, she, yeah. She was 17 years old. Oh, my God. I know. That's her playing drums and singing. She's 17. Yeah, and she lived for like 
16 more years after that. I know. She died. She had anorexia nervosa and, and died yeah. of heart-related injury. Yeah. She'd injured yeah. her heart muscles. Yeah. It's really sad. Really sad ending for her. Just super unhappy. Mm-hmm. And part of that was she loved to play drums, mm-hmm. but she was made to not play drums and just sing because they felt oh, okay. better if she was a front person. Uh, but man, you should see her playing drums and singing. It's just, it's so great to see. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll link to it on, on the, when I put, post the show. Cool. Oh, I promise everyone. There's one performance I think is just really great, and you can and you'll see it. So, um, yeah, there you go, everyone. So, so that was, you know what, Mary? Personally, I think that was a pretty painless, pretty painless, uh, show. Pretty painless show. Yeah. yeah. No, it was. I think that this this has uh worked pretty well. Yeah, the Skype part of it was painless, but I mean the music too was pretty painless. Oh, it definitely. There was definitely a significant uptick. Um. At song eleven, <laughs> is that right? Where, where, but before that, it was what's that moniker? Song eleven. Bit of a slog. Uh, no, fans win. That song eleven. Oh my gosh, so many songs in these. I forgot how many there were. I bet you this show is really long. I know. I, I think that there's twenty five. I can't see my. Uh, there's twenty six on this one. How long we're taping? Okay, dear. Well, I guess it's time that we wrapped up the show then, because we don't want to keep people away from their bathrooms any longer. Could you imagine if someone was listening to this on their exercise machine? They're dead. <laughs> yeah. All right. So if people want to contact us and send us loving missives, how can they do that? Um, our website, sneakydragon.com. You can send us an email at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. Follow us on Facebook at sneakydragon or on Twitter at sneaky underscore dragon. Nice. And uh, don't forget our contacts page where you can find links to our email address and you can find our snail mail address there as well. And I just want to throw open throw this open to everyone out there to all you sneaky dragon listening or sorry sneaky dragon listeners and also who are listening wait, wait, listeners. Wait, wait, wait. What's that, sorry? wait 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 yeah wait. i have a question yeah okay um so fans of sneaky dragon are called sneakers yep should fans of sneaky dragon listening party be called listeners no i prefer party goers i don't think that that's oh, okay that makes more sense because i was gonna say i don't think listeners is specific enough no, you know party goers i don't think that that really like says like oh i'm a fan of sneaky dragon listening party i'm a listener you know no. you know what i mean yep because yeah so they're party party goers it's pretty good they're party goers i'm just gonna throw this open if you have a question to us and you'd like to ask it feel feel free to roll it into our sneaky dragon 450th episode listeners questions episode where your question can go to the good use of you getting a draw in our prize pack draw the prize pack is of course going to include a t-shirt a sneaky dragon t-shirt a Sneaky Dragon mug, a bumper sticker, and some buttons. And so if you want those things, you need to ask us some questions. So email's probably best, but if you want to snail mail it, you're welcome to try. But sneaky, I have a question. Sneaky D at SneakyDragon.com. Yes, dear, sorry. Um, is, do you get one entry per question or one entry per... Nope. Yeah, one entry per, per question. So oh, okay. If you ask five questions... So like if you I ask five... 100 questions, I could get 100 entries? Yes, you could. Okay. And you also make the show very long, but that would make me very happy. Well, I mean, the show's going to be long anyway. That's oh, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. So, yeah, I just, but I just think it'd be, it'd be good if, if uh, any of you out there who happen to cross over between both shows, Sneaky Dragon all and you, Listening all Party. All of you. A.K.A. all of you. <laughs> you're welcome to listen to, or sorry, you're welcome to roll your question into our listener's question episode. Number 450 for Sneaky Dragon. Can, can't believe it, but it's coming up. It's going to be here in, on July 23rd, everyone. So ask a question. And win a prize. And also, win a house, win a car. If you ask a question 
I will send you a bumper sticker. Oh, wow. So there you go. Just a question. That's all it takes. Like you'll email it to them and they'll have to like print it out and glue it on the back of their car. <laughs> That's right. Some, some, uh, just with a glue stick. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not that at all. Okay, Mary. It's been okay, lovely Dad. talking to you. I miss, I miss seeing you. But oh, it's, yeah. It's I nice to be able to talk too. to you. Yes. So take care. Take you care. too. Be safe. Wash your hands. I, I am already. Thank you. You too. Thank you. I know you wash your hands. You also you're, be you're safe my, and wash you're your hands. my daughter, and you grew up having to wash yes. your hands all the time. All the time. Oh my God. <laughs> so we will see everyone next bye week, and we look forward to your comments, your contributions, and your enjoyment of our silly show. Bye, everyone. Okay, bye. bye.